you know, people have to do the ad, the analysis. It's like you just have to sit down and say, so how long do I think it's going to take? Do I have an ability to get in? Are my funders, you know, the, 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 is ImpactX well-connected so that they can actually introduce me in with a warm introduction at a high level so that I can bypass some things? Or does anyone have experience having done this and they know the method by which this can occur at this mobile company or that beauty products company? Hey guys, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm your host, Philip Kusumu, and thank you so much for giving me your time. I promise it'll be worth it. So sticking with the theme of Black History Month and speaking to early black founders and black investors, today I had the pleasure of sitting down with Eric D. Collins. Eric is the founder and managing director of Impact X Capital, a VC fund newly formed to focus on underrepresented and underestimated, in my opinion, founders across UK and Europe. They invest in women, people of color, and anyone who they deem has been missed by traditional or the more well-known and well-established VC funds in Europe. This was a brilliant episode because Eric has such a wealth of experience and knowledge. Originally starting off in consultancy and working in M&A and acquisitions to then transitioning into more of an operational role, working his way up from COO, CRO to now founder. So you can imagine just the breadth of experience that Eric has and brings to a VC fund and can be super value add to any entrepreneur that he invests in as Impact Techs continues to grow. The target for the fund is $100 million and they are well on their way to achieving that. They've already started to deploy capital and I've already seen over 400 companies in Europe alone which definitely dispels any myths around the fact that traditional VCs say around not being able to find diverse founders. They just need to hit Eric up. All right, this is a much longer than usual episode. So, you know, this episode is much longer than usual uh, because, you know, thanks to the guys at Founders Factory who allowed us to record this episode, we just literally sat down and had a great chat, which is what you'll be able to hear from this episode. But by all means, if you do want to just fast forward to when we start talking about Impact X, that actually starts within one hour into the episode. Uh, but I would say just listen to the whole thing from start to finish because Eric really does drop a lot of knowledge and insights just into his career and upbringing. All right, let's get into the episode. So Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Phil, for having me. It's good to be here. Awesome. So Eric, when you are out and about or when you're in Founders Factory introducing yourself, how do you introduce yourself to people? I introduce myself as a venture capitalist who is investing in underrepresented entrepreneurs in Europe. They were focused on three areas, digital technology, health education, lifestyle, media and entertainment. And we are most interested in targeting underrepresented entrepreneurs. So when you look at portfolios of venture capitalists in Europe, as well as in the States, you'll find that less than 4% of uh, equity goes to women, less than 1% of capital goes to people of color. Those are the people that we're interested in because we believe that the future is one where those are the individuals who are going to be creating the breakout products, the breakout services, the breakout business models. 
That's a that's a strong introduction there. there you go. <laughs> we, it has to be. It has to be. You have to come on strong. Yeah, that's strong. Like that's that. strong. That's good. Okay, so before we start talking about Impact X, because mm-hmm. I really want to delve into Impact X, um, let's let's take it back a bit. Mm-hmm. So you're obviously not from London. You're not mm. from High Street Kensington. <laughs> uh, <laughs> where, where? I guess where did you grow up? Mm-hmm. Where, where did this all start before you came into VC? Where are you from? So I am from London at this point. I have indefinite leave to remain. Okay. So I congratulate <laughs> okay. myself on having That's gotten good. that That's hard in, to get. That's in, hard. in August. Um, but I am from the United States, and I'm from the American South. So I was born in Alabama. And I grew up in North Carolina. So, and my family has been living in the United States in the South for hundreds of years, at least my father's family for wow. hundreds and hundreds of years. Wow. So, we're big believers in America and we're big believers in the South. Yeah, I can imagine. Mm-hmm. Like cornbread and all of that. Well, cornbread, <laughs> cornfields, you know, just, yeah. You know, yeah, we certainly do. Okay. And so, like, what was life like growing up in Alabama in, in, the, in, the, in the South? You know, my parents were. You know, very so when we were born, my parents were professors at um, Tuskegee Institute, so a historically black college and university. So that's where they were working during the civil rights movement, during the radical part of the civil rights movement. And so they're young professors who are down there really doing the good work. That in itself has informed sort of the kind of person that I am and the kind of children that they raise. I'm an older brother and a younger sister. And so we are very, very, and we are very, very focused on equity equitable treatment, fairness, uh, justice, all of those things have been very important and instilled. And I think part of that comes from just who my family is, and part of it comes from being in the American South, and part of it being a historically black college, and part of it's a civil rights movement. Um, I would then say that we jumped a little bit because my father left academia and started to work for a Swiss chemical company. He became an executive at a Swiss chemical company in the 70s. Wow. So here's a guy who is then moving his family to New York, outside of New York, a suburb, and then traveling back and forth to Basel, Switzerland. Wow. And then the family decides to move uh, with the same company when they move to the Sun Belt, so back to the south. They move to Greensboro, North Carolina, which is even more interesting because Greensboro is where the sit-in movement started. So if you think about it, my family has gone from here we are, all the kids born at a historically black college and university where people are marching over bridges in Selma and that sort of thing. They then go to New York. Dad's working in, in and out of Switzerland and then moved down to North Carolina where there's a sit-in movement started because black people could not eat at lunch counters. Wow. And so that's, and so that's sort of my entire existence mm. until I went away to university, Think, thinking about those sorts of things and being in that environment. But you'd be surprised that at that time, what I didn't think about is I didn't think about oppression. I didn't think about mm. second-class citizenship. I was you know, in an integrated school. We spent a good deal of time on sports teams. We spent a good deal of time in student government. We spent a good deal of time, you know, dance lessons, piano lessons, everything yeah. else that everyone yeah. else does. And then we um, went away to university. And at university, it was where I really got my first ideas about entrepreneurship as being a lever of change. That's so interesting because I guess for you, you know, during that time, it's almost like a juxtaposition, right? It's like Mm -hmm. your dad is this high-end professor traveling to Switzerland and you're, you're, you're upper middle class, if not upper class. And at the same time, you know, black people are still black people in the South Mm. and you you can't eat somewhere. Well, it's really, 
it's interesting, right? By the time I came around, segregation had ended, yeah. right? So there are still problems. I mean, you know, you can see in this today. You can listen to politics course, today, and there's yeah, still of course, problems. Of course, of um, course. But what I would say is we were sort of one of the first generations of integrated schools, mm. of integrated activities. And the expectation was that you belong in the South. We belong in the United States. We helped to build this country. It's just always been the same thing. It's kind of the same thing in terms of business. We think of the same sorts of things. It's, you know, when I grew up, we went to the black bank. We mm. went uh, black doctors and lawyers. Yeah. We went to the, we had a black builder who built our house. I mean, that was just the expectation. Anyone who came to repair would have been black. So there's a whole ecosystem that existed that was able to fund itself and create its own institutions and create its own traditions and the like. So it was actually a powerful, it was a nice empowering yeah. tech opportunity. Sounds like it. And so, you know, your dad was a professor. You didn't think to go down the professor route. I know education, mm-hmm. as far as education goes, you, you did pretty well. You went to Harvard. You went to Princeton. <laughs> so, you know, you're obviously quite a bright chap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I guess moving away from kind of like early career, I mean, early life, I guess, in the South, mm-hmm. how did you decide what path you were going to go down career-wise? That's an interesting question. I... Went to so I went in the in the United States. This is this is how I know that there's some differences. So I called it university. So we call it college. So yeah. I went to college, which is four years um, after you after you exit high school, and then after that you go on to study law if you want to study law uh, as a three year program. So, so that's where you did your JD at. Yeah. Harvard. So that's when I did my JD. Um, and I, I sort of went to law school almost as a finishing school. Mm. If you don't know what you want to do in life, law is not a bad thing to do. <laughs> law will allow you to read contracts. It will allow you to negotiate mm. um, you know, deal terms. It does a lot of things. It just allows you to understand legislation. So the, I decided that I'd go to law school. And then after law school, I still hadn't decided what I wanted to do. Right. Did, you know, was I going to be a strategy consultant? I certainly wasn't going to go teach. I'm not that good in you know, front of people in that way and, and directing the education of young minds and the formative. No, that wasn't going to happen. So instead, I decided to go on and do something else that actually allows you to look at a number of opportunities, analyze what fits with you, and then hopefully make a decision from there. So I went to strategy consulting. Right, and that was CMI consulting, That's CMI, right? So you were obviously at CMI for, was that nine years? Was it nine years? Yeah, it's probably it's about nine, years. nine years. Yeah, it was. So what was CMI? What did you do there? What did they do? What were you advising on? Like, talk me through that. Now, CMI was one of my favorite jobs. So CMI was started by a professor of mine, a guy named Roger Fisher, who wrote a book called Get, Getting to Yes, which was a best-selling business book for years and years and years, and translated into so many languages. And Roger Fisher was a professor of mine. I was a teaching ass- assistant for him. I was a research prof- assistant for him also. All of that, uh, I got an opportunity to look at negotiation because that was Roger's book. Getting to Yes is all about how to get good deals, Mm. how to make sure that you come out of a negotiation with an outcome which satisfies your interest. That's the whole thing. Roger was always asked by people, can you help us with a particular negotiation? People are on strike. Can you help us with that? Bullets are flying. Can you help us with that? We're having a challenge in terms of our um, corporate governance. Can you help us with that? So Roger set up a consulting firm. I joined this consulting firm, and everyone was just like me, right? Everyone had gone to, had been one of his students at Harvard Law School. So there are 30 of us who have the same sort of a background. And we're dealing with very high-end, single issue, not single issue, I would say it's sort of the most consequential transactions that many organizations have seen 
It's a merger. Yeah. It's an acquisition. Yeah. It is a joint venture. These are things that if the results are not sensational, you're not going to actually be able to get the return on your negotiation investment. And that's what we focused on, helping those organizations to get there. For a young person who had you know, done most of his education thinking about things like you know, how does entrepreneurship work, mm. who had been spending a good deal of time reading fantastic novels and looking at sort of fantastic movies also in my undergrad, to go into a field which allowed me to get to top-level decision-makers making once-in-a-lifetime or once-in-a-corporate's existence sort of decisions, those types of things gave me a perspective, it gave me access, and helped me to start to generate how I wanted to work in the world. Right. And so that is an opportunity. And I recommend for many, many people that if you don't necessarily know what you want to do, try and go into a consulting firm, but a consulting firm that has sensational training, has a good pedigree, has a good pedagogy around it. All of those sorts of things are important. It's not just to get to say you were a consultant, but that you actually got some fantastic training. You learned to do some spreadsheets. You learned to read balance sheets. You learned to do all those types of things. Right. Um, so were there any deals in particular during your time at CMI that kind of stood out to you? Um, as like this is a huge learning opportunity, and if I hadn't come here, I'd never would have seen this. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to give you. I want to give you a strange one because it all. This one is not many of the most of them are confidential, right? Yeah, of course, of um, course. Even after the fact, uh, and this was years ago. This is decades ago that I was working there. Um, but we worked with. Do you, you know the company Xerox? Yes. And do you know the company Kodak? Yes. So both of them are in Rochester, New York, and these are two, they, they were you know, at the top of the Fortune 500 for decades, and these are organizations that built entire ecosystems and infrastructures around them that involved, that incorporated sort of like an amoeba, just took, just was able to, um, and needed to take over whole towns, mm. whole sort of swaths of land. And as the world changed, if you think about Kodak in particular, and the world changed from, you know, I'm sh- I don't even know if you've ever seen... I've, I've used of, a camera. Oh, you, you know, used the, a camera. Okay. The disposable cameras, I know. Okay, you do I'm know. not that young. Thank you. Okay, okay good. <laughs> you, you just look so, you look so young. See, congratulations on, 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 on your genetics. That has nothing to do with you. It's all genetics. Yeah, exactly. You know, that gives you that youthful glow. Um, but um, when you look at that... When you look at what's happening in terms of digital and digital coming into play and Kodak having a, having put together huge, huge infrastructure around creating cameras and ha- making film, and if that's going away and all that shrinking, and then you have these communities that rely upon it. It's the same thing that you found in the United States in Detroit in terms of the manufacture of cars. Right. As it became sort of distributed around the world and it became Detroit became less important um, as a place for manufacture, all of a sudden you had this displacement of not only people but also place. How do you, as a good corporate citizen, which Kodak and Xerox obviously were in that community, how do you, after all these years, negotiate what you're going to do with the town of Webster or the town of Greece when all of a sudden they don't have your tax base, Mm. which then means education in the United States, property taxes pay for education. So all of a sudden there's no property um, tax coming in from this property. What's going to happen to the educational system? What's going to happen to services and the like, Mm. which are built for sort of this big, huge infrastructure and a corporation, and now we're stuck with a smaller number of people. Those are the kinds of issues that we would get in. And, And as you can imagine, they're very, very intricate. There's lots of of not only um, technical elements, there's lots of governmental elements, and then there's also the emotion. There are people, real people in real lives involved. Mm. So those are some of the more interesting things that I was involved with. And can you talk a bit about your role in navigating that 
So when you're in a consulting firm like ours, you're, you're hired, well, like ours was, CMI, you're hired in to um, design a process. So right. you work with the parties, hopefully on various sides. There might be two parties, one party versus another party, or there might be 20 parties. And you work among them to design and get aligned around a process that you're going to follow to get to a resolution. Yep. So that was our job, to design that process and then often to take that process and facilitate it. So we would be sitting at the negotiation table helping to come up with um, various answers to problems, helping to make sure the communication was effective, helping to make sure that we immortalized the documents correctly. We'd always work. We'd work with bankers. We'd work with lawyers. We'd work with accountants. We'd work with a lot of different yeah, people. Yeah. But we would then be responsible for making sure that at the end of the day, everyone was happy. And then at the end of the day, everyone could hold hands at a news conference and say, this is the result. It was very rewarding. Very rewarding. No, it sounds it. So I guess your time as a consultant really set the tone or gave you the foundations of what you would need to go on in your career and do various other things. You know, like you said, learning how to do spreadsheets, write documents, and Mm -hmm. speaking to accountants, bankers, Mm -hmm. people doing a lot of transactional, you know, tasks. Mm -hmm. Um, So then how did you decide to go down the route of sales and marketing once you left CMI? So after like nine years or so, you left. um, And how did you know, or why did you decide rather to go down that path? Well, there are several interim steps. I actually became a partner in the firm, and then I spun off as managing partner with three of my other partners, another company that did similar kind of work. And then out of that, I spun out a um, technology company, Tejic. which is how I met Tejic. No? Is it Tejic or Tejic? Speedsoft. Oh. Tejic comes later. That's, oh, that's, okay. Those are the good times. Um, <laughs> but this was called Speedsoft, so I started that company, and that's actually where I met my, gen- my partner, um, Paula Groves. Ah, Paula. Yeah, so shout pa- out to Paula. Shout out to Paula, of course. <laughs> That's where I met Paula because Paula was a VC. She had been in. She had been a general partner in one big fund called Triumph, which is about eight hundred million. That's in Oakland, right? That no, that was actually in Boston. Ah, she okay. moved to Oakland later when she got married. Right, and then she started another fund called Axon Capital, and we were at Axon. Axon actually is sort of a predecessor of Impact X because right. it focused on women and minorities in technology companies. Huh. And that was their investment thesis. And they had $70 million or so to invest. And we, and we went to them looking for uh, funding because we had actually taken a product that we spun out of our practice, our consulting practice, and made it into a product and said, we need their funding. And, and you know, that was the beginning of my relationship and friendship with, with Paula. So in fact, all of that happened. And then it didn't go so well in that particular company. So I certainly understand operating companies that have a moment, and then that moment is ended. Yeah. So that, that ended. And then I found myself looking for a next experience, and that's when I ended up going to Time Warner, their AOL division, if you right. remember AOL. Yeah, 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 I, mean, I know AOL. And then I ended up running a division of AOL called TGIC. TGIC. And that's where TGIC came about. And so that's how I got to starting to work on companies and really starting to think about sort of the growth and investment potential. Just to step back a bit, because I didn't actually know that, that, that little segment there. Mm-hmm. Why did that company fail? Do you or did it fail? Or did you, was it a fire sale in the end? Or like what, what actually happened to that? We could not get traction. Mm. That was the challenge. The companies that we, uh, that we had preliminary traction with in pilots, they started going out of business because we were at a bubble in the internet. Right. And ours was, we were going to companies that were direct to consumer, and those were folding around us. And at the time, there was also a seizing of the, um, 
there was a seizing of the capital. Capital was suddenly not flowing as it had right. been flowing. This is like the late 90s, early yeah, 2000s. Exactly. Right. And I, so we just caught up in a timing problem. Right. Now, the, there are many companies that survived. Ours wasn't able to survive because we weren't able to get funding. And we weren't able to get further funding. So right. we had and, to close, regrettably. And then that was you said that was part of the AOL or TGIC was part of AOL. TGIC was part of AOL. And so you, they joined Time Warner in one of the biggest mergers of all time, right? Were you around for that time? I came right after that. So got it. AOL and Time Warner had combined just before I got there. Yeah, which was very controversial because one had value, the other didn't. <laughs> well, you know, th- th- think about think about the world. Uh, you know, in, in hindsight, it's all very clear, but at the time. AOL is growing. Yeah, of course. I mean, they were like a publicly traded company. They were. They had billions of dollars in investment. They were like valued at, you know, wherever the number was at the time. It was insane. And everybody was like, oh my God, these guys are going to come and steal our lunch money. I mean, there was even conversations of AOL joining Disney at the time under Mike Eisner. Um, And then Mike Eisner was like, this is, no. (laughs) (laughs) And I think um, Disney makes a good choice and has continued to double down in terms of being a content company and a full immersive um, entertainment company and that's it. But if you think about sort of the Think about the other media companies. All of them have struggled right. in terms of what to do in the digital world. Yeah, you know the the content the content creators who are sort of single channel content creators have consolidated, right? Yeah. So, they're, so now they're humongous conglomerates. Those that had only a single um, sort of a channel now have multiple. So they have digital arms. They actually have movie companies. They also have broadcast companies, yeah. and they also have um, cable companies. So they then have become sort of this, and still struggle, excuse me, and still struggle. We see in terms of Viacom and CBS mm-hmm. having broken apart and now back together. And the question is still, now that they've done that, what is that company going to actually be, and how is it going to compete with organizations that like Netflix and Amazon and others? So uh, it's not as though I think that that was necessarily a bad combination. Mm. And Warner Brothers and, and Time Warner and Time Magazine, all of them have had yeah. you know, their, their challenges yeah, that yeah, exist. Yeah, yeah. And so the question of what, and I don't know what the answer is, but I don't necessarily look back and say that that was the wrong combination. AOL as a dial-up service, you know, was a dial-up service. Obviously, that that became somewhat obsolete. But the idea of actually being a content aggregator that created um, communities around things like black voices and Asian voices Mm. and actually had content that was associated with and was curating that content on a daily basis and making it available and then also having out and then being able to push out to other pieces like DC Comics was part of it, Time Magazine was part of it, there and you know there are all sorts of ways in which you can Warner Brothers obviously there are ways in which you could think there could be some synergies that could really drive, but when you the combination I assume um, again I wasn't there and I wasn't at the negotiation table and I certainly wasn't high enough in the organization to be having these conversations. Although one of the people who I consider a mentor is Dick Parsons, who I again came to know late in my career at mm. AOL, but. Um, he, I think the personalities also didn't necessarily mesh right. just from the way that they, the teams were introduced to each other. And so from there, there was never, it was not necessarily the most um, harmonious time at the top. Right. And so TJIC, how did you get involved with TJIC? Uh, what did you do there and how big did it get? Interesting. So TJIC is, if you ask me, TJIC is so relevant today. If you... I keep on saying these sorts of things. For those who don't know, what, what was TGIC? What did TGIC, TGIC do? was a technology company. It, it's still a technology company. Yeah, no, it's still around. And TGIC it had one specific product that many people knew called T9, which was 
an early example of AI. So if you think about it, the idea of how do you, how does, uh, when you're typing in a certain key and you're putting in certain key presses and out of those key presses comes a word and that that word, you can then predict the next word and the next word, it's all sort of using sort of context in order to predict the future mm. and your future resolution of a desire. And so it's early AI, applied AI. And it's using natural language processing, not so much machine learning, but eventually incorporating machine learning in later iterations. Um, so there is, that's the kind of company we were in. And it was an embedded technology, but soon became an app. So this is in 2002, I think I joined. I started working with TGIC. And this is th when the first Apple phone came out in 2008. 2008. Yeah. So this is before that. Wow, so, so super early. So this is super early. And I was in the mobile division of AOL, which was, such a, which was such a benefit for me to actually end up in that organization. And then to not only be in that portion of the organization, but to then be able to move into one of their subsidiaries, which was the TGIC subsidiary. Because mm. AOL was headquartered in Washington, D.C., and TGIC was headquartered in Washington State, six hours flying wow. across country. Yeah. And that's the company that I eventually, that's the division I eventually ran. And we were able to grow that company because what we would do is get deals with big organizations, Samsung, Nokia. Wow. I remember Nokia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, also, <laughs> uh, Ericsson. Ericsson, Mitsubishi. Wow. Um, Siemens used to have cell phones. Everyone used to have cell phones. And we used to, um, we would do deals with them to be embedded on the cell phone and so that when you started typing, that's what you'd get. You'd get TGIC. Now mm. you have choices. You get the Google keyboard, you get an Apple keyboard, or you can take SwiftKey. That's how I ended up at SwiftKey. Yeah, I was going to say. Uh, I ran a company that then so interesting. grew tremendously and became yeah. sort of the 800-pound the gorilla because we were doing about a billion units a year. That's crazy. At one point. It was, it was, it was absolutely fantastic when you have an 85% market share. And, we and how grown, big was the team at the time? The team was 110 people. So, okay, fairly oh, decent was, size. It was decent size. And, that's, and then we also had offices in Japan. We had offices, several offices in China and then in Korea. So it was, a very, it was a very broad organization and doing lots and lots of interesting things. And what was your main area of responsibility? What was I, your remit? At the I time? started off as being uh, in charge of um, business affairs, meaning that I did all the deals. So it was my responsibility to make sure the deals got done. Right. Then I eventually took on um, the contracting organization. I took on the marketing organization. I took on the sales organization. And I took over everything. And yeah. I became the general manager. Yeah. So then I got to be a general manager after a little while. So you're there for seven years in total? In its, in its, various, in its various formats, because we eventually, it wasn't a strategic asset for um, Time Warner and AOL, so it was packaged up and we were sold at auction. And so we went to Nuance, a public company that deals with voice recognition and other sorts of things out of Burlington, Massachusetts, probably the leading through the you know early, early teens of 2000, the leading um, sort of AI company associated with voice recognition. Right. And then, but we put together an entire package that had voice recognition, handwriting, and then also um, text input. And so then all the input technologies that were necessary, as well as the output technologies for mobile devices. So it's a really, uh, I like that organization also. Is that also. what morphed into Mobile Posse? No. That was something else. <laughs> that was something else. Okay. Yeah. So after your time there at TJ acquisition, mm -hmm. you go over for the acquisition. I stayed for three years. Stay for three years, earn out period, I guess. It was it was a very, it was it was a, lovely, <laughs> it's a long earn out period. It was a fair. lovely earn out. So yeah, I mean, I was, <laughs> okay. So it sounds like it was worth the wait. It was worth the wait. It was worth the wait. Okay, mm -hmm. cool. So you know, three years are done. Mm -hmm. Check out. Mm -hmm. 
sabbatical for a bit, or are you just straight into no, the next straight thing? Straight into the next thing. But you, what I would say about the one thing that I would say is the thing that I was taught at um, Nuance was Nuance was not, and the the chair of the board, a guy named Paul Ritchie, was not afraid to buy a company mm. and was not afraid to go after them hard, whether it meant suing the company and driving down their stock price or whether it meant us going after them. And that wasn't necessarily the outcome. That was the outcome. It wasn't the purpose. But we would go after companies very, very aggressively because we felt that there were certain combinations that made sense. That's when I learned about acquiring companies mm. and valuing companies in a different sort of a way right. and thinking about what is the future um, value of these organizations and in combination what they might actually equal. So I got to do, I, I was the executive in charge for mobile in charge of acquisition. So that allowed me to see so many different companies and to hear lots and lots of different pitches, all of which helped me in my current role. That's good. So as a consultant, you sat like in the middle of the table mm-hmm. and then as an operator, you got to sit on both sides of the table, Absolutely. I guess. That's fantastic. That was good. Um, okay, so now, you know, acquisitions happened. Mm-hmm. You, you, My you, earnout's done. Your earnout's done. Mm-hmm. And then Mobile Posse, how did that come about? Mobile Posse came and about. And for those who don't know, what was Mobile Posse? Mo- what is Mobile Posse? Because Mo- they're still around now. They're still around too. Yeah. They're, they're a profitable company now. So Mobile, Mobile Posse is an advertising tech company. It sits in uh, on the home screen. They had developed a product, and I thought that this was the most masterful thing. The most valuable piece of real estate on a mobile phone is the home screen. If mm-hmm. you can own the home screen, i.e., you are able to talk to the, uh, the, the user at different times of the day, you give them different types of information, be push, informa- push notification about the weather and sports scores, mm. and if you use an advertising model on top of that to make it free to them, and then a revenue share, which then makes it easy for the carrier to say that we want you preloaded, you've got this virtuous circle. You're giving yeah. information to the end user, you have an advertiser who is able to communicate, and you have a and then you have a organization, the carrier, who wants you to actually communicate on their behalf. And if you, and for us, we were actually able to use the names of the um, organizations. They had branded products. So Verizon had a branded product. AT- AT&T had a branded right. product. And so we would be powering their branded product. And that was a very good thing. So I like that business because the question of how do you actually get users to engage and in, a, in, a, in an authentic fashion. Hmm. So them getting, and not just sort of in a creepy way, but getting them to establish a profile, actually using sort of their past behavior to determine what it is that they'd like to see next and making sure that you're doing that at intervals that are appropriate for them. Uh, we gave away a lot of things. So we give away, there were a lot of coupons or a lot of special deals, yeah. you know, time of day oriented. That's what, and this, that was what that was meant to be. It's morphed a bit now. Mm. The company's a little bit different, but when I was there, for the four years that I was there growing that business from what it was about doing 35,000 a month to maybe 700,000 a month wow. that we were able to really grow that. But I had a great team. Yeah. That, was, that was another sensation. A lot of AOL alumni. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And obviously when you got into this role, did you start off as COO or did yes. you? So you start off as COO. So the COO role is really interesting to me because it's, mm-hmm. it's very, it's different from company to company, right? It's like, mm-hmm. no, you don't, you don't really know what it means for one organization as opposed to your organization. So for you at your time at Mobile Posse, what was kind of your main role there? And it would be good to actually know what your thoughts are on what the role of a COO actually is or what you think most, the most effective way to be a COO is. You know, that is a very good question, Phil. I think a COO, in my opinion, is an individual who's execution-oriented. 
when you think about making an investment and you're investing in a, in a management team or you're investing in anyone, you really are looking for them to execute. Mm. So this, this is the plan you've put in front of me. It's nice and bright and shiny. Here's your slick sort of, a pre, here's your slick sort of pitch. You've done that beautifully. Now the question is around execution. And a COO is intended to make sure that you're able to execute as effectively as possible with the resources and to get to the next set of milestones if you're a, pu- if you're a company that's privately funded, right. to get to the next set of milestones necessary for you to get uh, to, for you to get funded again and then to bring in new capital hopefully and then an increased value. So I have always been responsible for that and working with founders who have um, either run companies before or maybe never run companies before. Mm. And the reason for bringing me in has generally been, and I think for most COOs, is to make sure that you are working with the founding team or the current management team to make sure that they can effectively execute. Right. I think that's that's key among, and I don't think that changes from company to company. Mm. Some people would have more administrivia involved. Some people might have finance as part of the chief operating officer role. With me, I always like to have finance and I always like to have um, sales. I want to know where the money's going, and I want to know how the How's money's coming, coming in. in. Yeah, so those, those are two things that I constantly have. And so at um, my first COO role, which was at M- Mobile Posse, but it's also kind of the strategic role also, although as general manager, I was also the person who was then taking care of the sales pipeline and the funnel and all of that and making sure that we were stru- structuring that very, very well, and then finance and everyone else worked for me. So, yeah. Nice. Good. And did you enjoy your time there at Mobile Posse? You were there for about, was it I two did. years? Four years. Four years. Four years. I enjoyed my time there tremendously. Um, I thought it was the kind of organization, again, I'm always interested in organizations that can have a big change and can impact the world. And particularly since the people who are using, the people who are using mobile technologies as a, especially handsets, as a primary connecting device mm-hmm. are sometimes people who can't afford to buy a laptop and other sorts of things. So this is a very critical portion of being part of, not being part of the digital divide, but actually being in the digital stream. Right. And so for me, it's very important that we have an experience that actually allows people to, uh, not through searching and not through finding, but actually through push and other sorts of things and and no, and your own profile to be able to deliver things that make sense for you to make life easier. I mean, obviously, I think some. I'm, I mean, I know you mentioned uh, mobile policy are still around; they're profitable now. But mm-hmm. you know, Apple have a version of that themselves mm-hmm. now, and so do Samsung. So mm-hmm. I, I guess it was very timely that you guys came out. But I think now they must be struggling a bit to try and you know how do we become the default? Because now you have to be a lot more intentional trying to be the de facto you know company on that smartphone right now. Because people do have that themselves. Remember, I said I can't, I'm not supposed to interrupt, so I wasn't going to yeah, no. I, I'm trying. <laughs> just, okay. I'm trying. Yeah. Uh, but I would say that um, you look at look, some of the question that you have is who does the with whom does the end user identify? Right. Does the end user identify with Apple? Do they identify with Samsung? Do they identify with Vodafone? Do they um, identify with GifGaf? Who do they identify with? So is the service provider which is providing more than sort of just a bill to me, but actually having benefit for me? And with whom do I have something other than a billing relationship? Mm. So if indeed you can get to the point, and this is one of the this is one of the quandaries, but also why we decided to work with the carriers. And in the United States, the carriers are very very powerful, you know, extremely powerful. Yeah. They they you know it. 
how many, 100 million users AT&T has and 100 million users Verizon has. They're just big, big organizations. And they're still horrible at customer service and horrible service anyway. I, wouldn't, I do not know <laughs> that to be the case. I Bill. know I'm that to be the I'm case. Just, I used AT&T. I hated it. Okay, I'm, I'm in London now. I'm safe. You're safe now. I can say what I want now. And I have two telephones. So let's, <laughs> if, my, if my service suddenly goes off, I'm going to blame yeah, you. Yeah, no. Okay. Oh, horrible AT&T. Anyway. So, but if you, th- but if you think, so, but there are people who also then have, if you have lots of other things that are in their home. And so these organizations have quietly and very publicly also been trying to acquire more and more of the activities that are associated with you. And so if you can actually identify with them as a company, we as a service provider, and that service provider can be provided under a brand that people like and know or at least don't hate, then you actually have an opportunity to be able to um, continue in a very inexpensive way. Think about how inexpensive it is. If you can get the carrier, and this is cost of acquisition, this is all you're going to hear about with direct-to-consumer plays. It's like, what's the cost of acquisition? The cost of acquisition, if you are working with the carrier and the carrier is providing the service, is almost zero. Zero, So it's very inexpensive to find a new user. If churn is still a problem, Mm. and monetizing them might be a challenge, but I'm telling you, that is something that you have to think through. Does Apple just allow you on board, and do they allow you to become? Do they promote you and push you? They do some things, but they're you know how many other hundred million other apps yeah. that are out there. Yeah. So some of these things are, I think, decisions that I have to get when I'm thinking with entrepreneurs. I have to get them to think through sort of what are because one of the metrics that we're going to be talking about throughout our lives together is the cost of acquisition and are they going down? No, that's good. Um, no, I, I was I, I was thinking because. I was listening to a show recently, I can't remember what, but they were basically talking about like customer acquisition, how it's super important, how when VCs are now thinking about consumer products, it's more about where can we figure out the organic reach as mm. opposed to the customer acquisition costs. Because right now it's just a case of who can spend the most on Facebook and Google. Mm. And you're just um, empowering the platforms to make more money, but how does that actually transcend or how does that translate into creating a sustainable business where you're not just pumping money into our platform? Because obviously there are platform shifts, mm-hmm. and when platforms do shift, there's an opportunity there to kind of grow organically. But mm-hmm. when they haven't, because we haven't had a platform shift or mm-hmm. techno- technological shift recently. Mm-hmm. So right now, Facebook, Google are just taking everybody's money to acquire customers. Um, so I guess what you're talking about ultimately is a strategic partnership. And thinking about strategic partnerships, I think every consumer startup or every consumer product should be thinking about strategic partnerships because that's how you can get the customer acquisition cost to zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a guy on the show not too long ago, actually, um, called Jack Bowman, who mm-hmm. ultimately did that and ended up selling his company for like 70, 50 million mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. So like, how do we think about... I don't think enough startups in the UK think about that enough, mm-hmm. like enough. Like, how can I... I think when people in the UK specifically think about strategic partnership, they tend to partner with other startups. Mm-hmm. So the, the, there isn't that much leverage. Like you're both struggling for customers. There's mm-hmm. no point in partnering. You need to go to a Vodafone mm-hmm. or a GifGaff mm-hmm. if it's a tech product or someone who has leverage, 100 million customers. How do you get onto that platform and how do you service their customers with your solution? And I don't think enough people in the UK really think about consumer tech in that, in that sense. I don't. So you have got insight. So if people don't know this, Phil is one of the people that I have spent a good deal of time with because Phil has provided huge value, not just through this podcast, but also introductions because he, um, he knows the community. And so the entrepreneur community has been opened up to us at ImpactX because of things that Phil has done. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Uh, now, <laughs> shout out to you. Um, and then also you've, and you've been very generous in terms of your network. One of the things that I would say is that... so. 
going after an enterprise partnership is a time-consuming activity, mm. right? Because most enterprises, whereas if you do it with a startup, then they, they're very few decision makers. If you, do it, if you go direct to consumers, so you do an app, although you have some costs of putting the app together and you have continuing costs of customer acquisition, you have speed on your side. When you're going to, and the great thing about going with an enterprise is that you do have the opportunity to reduce your cost of acquisition, but your selling cycle can extend for a long, long period of time. Mm. And that sales cycle is another challenge. So you're sort of here, you're burning capital in order to, with salespeople, expensive salespeople who have connections and who have uh, uh, you know, a, a Rolodex, as we used to call it, right. of, connect, of contacts within organizations to get you in front of the right decision makers. But that could take a lot of time. Mm. And you don't necessarily have that much time. So because of burn and that sort of thing. So those are things that you also have to weigh. So I am a firm believer in enterprise selling but also understand that telling someone who is starting a business for the first time, maybe it's their first job even, and then saying, now go out and get an enterprise relationship. Of course, yeah. It's just like, <laughs> and how are you going to get through everyone who can say no? So the first person you talk to who is, say, a person who does business development, they can say no. Legal can say no afterward. Compliance can say no after mm. that. The board can say no after that. There are so many yes, no's that you have to get through in order to get to a yes that that can take some time. So I also, I do caution entrepreneurs, even though I think that, you know, it, this worked for Mobile Posse and has worked for a number of companies with whom I've worked. It's just not always the strategy. So the thing that I think you said, which I agree with, and you got to tell me what is happening here among your, among your friends and among your peers is that you know people have to do the an, the analysis. Mm. It's like you just have to sit down and say, so how long do I think it's going to take? Do I have an ability to get in? Are my funders, you know, the the, the is Impact X well connected so that they can actually introduce me in with a warm introduction at a high level so that I can bypass some things? Or does anyone have experience having done this and they know the method by which this can occur at right. this mobile company or that beauty products company? Yeah, no, that's good. I wanna I wanna move on a little bit now and, and talk about your time at SwiftKey. Hmm. So for those who don't know SwiftKey, SwiftKey is probably one of the very few like successful startups that come out of the UK. Um, they sold to Microsoft, two hundred fifty million transaction. It was very very big, it big deal. Mm-hmm. You obviously COO there. No, I was chief revenue and distribution officer. Okay, they had a COO. Ah, I we thought won't you were right. Okay, so CRO. Mm-hmm. So you're the CRO there. So talk to me about your time there. Like, what was it like at the time, up until the acquisition? And did you do you agree with the acquisition? As in, did they sell at the right time, or did they sell too soon, or did they sell too late? You know? oh, okay, okay, um, uh, uh, we can go there too. We can go. <laughs> because it, they, organizations that are built on promise, you know, it's all a conversation about what to do. Now, the, the, that company had lots of metrics when I came to. When I came to SwiftKey, and let me let me put in this caveat, I like SwiftKey a lot. Love those founders. Yeah. I like Ben Medlock. I like John Reynolds. Yeah. I, you know, good people who hired a great set of people around them. Like them tremendously. Um, and I brought a number of people into that organization because I was so I was so comfortable in that organization. Mm. Um, but I joined, and I joined in 2014. I moved here in order to join. They had found me through a venture capitalist, and this person is now a venture capitalist here in the UK. His name is Lars um, Feltzel Nielsen, who's at Balderton, a GP at yeah. Balderton, a good friend of mine who worked for me, actually, wow. when um, he reported to me back at Strategic Days. And then he went on to, he went to Dropbox and then to Uber. Right. And, then he, and then he came on to, and then he came into Balderton as a GP. So he 
recommended me into the organization, and they felt, based on my experience and my, and my success, and the success, not just mine, but the success of TGIC, meant that I could make sense for them. Think about it. TGIC's actually a precursor. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's AI, as I've described it. It's how do you, you know, how do you use context, content and context in order to protect words and that sort of thing. And now this is fully an app, and it's fully, um, and it's fully um, hosted in the cloud. There are all sorts of great things about it. So the world has evolved. Yeah. But you still need to send text messages, or you need to send WhatsApp messages, and you need to fill in fields. So there you go. So that company, I came there to grow their enterprise business, to make sure that we actually were able to get on hundreds of millions of handsets as opposed to going through the app store, even yeah. though we had a, a direct consumer play, to make sure that we were actually as strongly linked as we could be with the handset manufacturers. And from the times of when I was in, when I was at um, TGIC, TGIC, I mean, the names were really names like Nokia. Nokia was the biggest. They were, they were distributing 400 million handsets Yeah, a no, year. Nokia was a big deal. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I come back and there's a, a company called Oppo and there's a company called, um, oh, what, what is uh, called? Um, they're all the Chinese companies. There's OnePlus. Uh, and Huawei. Just, and Huawei. Well, Huawei's huge. Um, but they're all TCL. It's like all sorts of HTC. Companies. Oh, HTC. Oh, wow. HTC. Well, but HTC was, was way, way, way back in the day. I actually um, dealt with HTC at, um, at TGIC. But there were new companies coming out of different places. And so the exciting piece was now we had companies out of India. Now we had companies, more and more companies out of China. And so that made for a very interesting sort of a dynamic uh, and different culture around um, contracting, mm. a different time frames that people were looking at in terms of how do you get from you know the time that you test a product to the time you actually embed it, what the economics were had changed completely, and so that's the thing. So that was it was it was very exciting to work with a team and grow a team. I worked with product management very closely. I had to work with. Um, Engineering, obviously, very closely. Professional services, because we had to do a lot of embedding and a lot of customization mm. associated with stuff. And then, of course, the sales team. Always, I come back Always to the sales, sales team. team. Uh, what's Always. the money saying? What's the money Where's saying? the money at, yeah, guys? Absolutely. This is great. This is a great, yeah. cool app, guys. Yeah. Where's exactly. the money? <laughs> Where's the money? Where's the money? That's cool. And what were kind of the biggest strategic partnerships that you guys had? Because I don't know, was SwiftKey ever a default app on any handset? Absolutely. Samsung. Oh, Samsung. It was for Samsung for a bit, and then it was also BlackBerry. Oh, wow. Okay, maybe we shouldn't talk about that one. Yeah, the BlackBerry <laughs> device, right? Well, I saw someone the other day. I was talking, I was, I was at a conference, and it was like, you have a BlackBerry? Like, does it and work? Like, yeah, it's like a, <laughs> and they loved it. Um, and so they said, um, and then, no, last week at Freeze, actually, someone actually had a BlackBerry device sitting next to me at a dinner. Um, and then uh, many of the or many organizations that right. are brand names, we would be embedded and default, and wow. that was the important thing. So you mm. not only negotiate embedding, that's one thing, but default because yeah. you want people to sort of have that experience mm. first and to get used to that experience. And then Google, the Android, obviously started to have its own, its own um, variation, yeah. and that variation was it got to be better and better. And so and then the question became competing head to head, and if we're going to be on, and Samsung has its own. It has its own, and we are the Samsung, and then um, Android has its, and it's um, on this Android um, operating system. Then what does that mean? So, yeah. I guess at the time at SwiftKey, what were some of the, the challenges, and, and how big was the team when you were there? We got to 100 and, I think, 135, 150. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What were some of the challenges that you experienced while you were at SwiftKey? I mean, all startups have challenges, but was, does any stand out in terms of, okay, this is something that came up? 
we thought this was going to be the end of the company. Um, and this oh. is how we got. Maybe, maybe not that yeah, dramatic. No, I mean, not I'm, that just dramatic. To, I'm just trying to get a good sound bite here. But. Right. <laughs> no, I would say, I would say, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't, I, I'm, I loved every company and I, everything went great. That's what I keep on saying. <laughs> I, I would say that the big thing was explosive growth in the company itself because the company had been relatively small. Before I came, all of a sudden, on a weekly basis, more and more people were coming and trying to manage the culture as well as manage um, all the making sure that all those people could be put to good use as quickly as possible and, and contribute what they wanted to, what they need to contribute to the organization. Mm. That's a big challenge in an organization as you get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, also, we were opening different offices, and so trying to then maintain that sense of team because that was extremely important to the mm. management team. How do you maintain what is Swift Key if you have an office with one person in Delhi, if you have an office in Seoul, Korea, yeah. if you have an office in um, Taiwan? We didn't have an office in Taiwan, but we did have one in Silicon Valley in Palo Alto. Ah. So making sure that those all people all felt connected and were able to contribute, and that communication was as efficient as possible, because yeah. you know negotiating deals is very dynamic. It's not as though you can wait you know eight hours until someone wakes up to try and say, oh, so someone in Shanghai needs an answer now, but why don't we wait twenty four hours and get it to them? It's just the 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 exigencies of business and the opportunity that you want to hit yeah. makes mean sometimes it became unsociable. But other than that, unsociable hours. But other than that, I think that the major challenges were just how to control growth and then also how to put an app, which we had started off really as an embedded business and then moving to a consumer business, how to make sure that those things exist nicely together. Mm. Those are very different businesses. Yeah. You know, if you're an enterprise-to-enterprise selling organization and then you're going into the app store, those are two very, very different businesses. And first of all, you have to tell the enterprise why you're competing against them in the Android store if they're on the Android platform mm. and you are in the Android store as a standalone app. And why should they pay you? Or why, what, what, are you what are they getting that's a benefit? So that's one thing. And then also behind us, when I started in, um, in embedded technologies, embedded technologies were getting about a dollar per handset. By the time I left and by the time we get to um, the end of TGIC before, as it was being acquired by Microsoft, you're ending up where um, you are actually having to pay handset manufacturers in order to be on the device. So I guess the biggest thing is the business model changed yeah. completely. And so trying to maintain a business that ends up, that used to be able to generate revenue and sometimes margin and profit and then go to businesses that are trying to do some of the same types of things but then have to do it um, and then try and monetize elsewhere. And it's an app that's considered a utility app that consumers haven't had to pay for and getting consumers to pay yeah. for. So it's adopting a new business model. So in some ways, it's a good thing that as we were changing and morphing the business model, that we were increasing the number of users and that the increase in number of users was something that was attractive to a big company, Microsoft. Microsoft, yeah. yeah. And so when that deal came about, you know, I guess were you involved in that transition from... Oh, yes. Yeah, well, I'm sure. <laughs> With all that experience, you must have been. Well, I was involved in the transition. The transaction was handled by the board and by our two co-founders who, who did a stellar job. But the transition of the organizations, you can imagine that, uh, well, anyone who knows um, Microsoft knows that there's not another company in the world that has a balance sheet quite like it. So they can, you know, they can pay, they have a hundred billion in cash. And at the time they like had a hundred billion in cash yes. just sitting on the books. <laughs> that's crazy. So they can, they're just, I mean, but that's an organization that yeah. from a number of, a relatively discrete number of products just throws off a great deal of, of profit. Yeah. 
And so the ability to then use that and, and, and sort of put that to work is one of their, is one of the things that they um, pride themselves on and they do very, very well. So when they started, when we started the conversations about how to transition, the question was, how strategic is the asset in terms of revenue versus distribution? So we had revenue, we had millions of pounds worth of revenue, but you know, we had hundreds of millions of mobile users. And when you think about Microsoft, you don't really think about them in the mobile space, right? Absolutely not. Yeah. So, so <laughs> to get an asset like uh, to get an asset like SwiftKey, and then to be able to deploy that under the um, brand of Microsoft, and then to have a real play with almost every handset manufacturer in the world, that's a big thing. Yes. So yes. that's so. But having to, but you have to do all that transition. How? Do, what do you do in terms of all those salespeople who are out there? who are selling for money and now need to talk about sort of managing relationship mm. and sort of talking about shared marketing dollars. Those are some of the things we had to go through. And we also had to then go through sort of rationalizing who needs to stay and who needs to go. How much engineering do we need to have that's associated with um, customization uh, at each OEM level for each handset type? And so you know, those, those are always interesting conversations. But an organization, the organization Microsoft decided to absorb most of the people. And so it wasn't one of those where you have like uh, suddenly everyone's axed. Uh, so, but it did take me, I say, for six months in that transition. Okay. But knowing that I wasn't going to stay. Right. Um, I, I did spend a lot of time trying to find the right role, but there was not the right role. It was role. the right role. Mm-hmm. Uh, turns out, like, it, maybe that was the best thing for you. I mean, because now we're here. Well, <laughs> now we are here. Because you would have go- got, got caught up in the whole, you know, Microsoft oh. vacuum and just been an executive, and it would have been very boring. All that, really, all that Microsoft stock, that <laughs> Microsoft stock. That no that, one needs right now. Uh, no, and that fant- needs. Yeah, everyone needs. And all that fantastic <laughs> sort of, all those benefits. Microsoft has, you know, it's, it's been a company for a long time and been able to, um, you know, support. It's been in Seattle. If you go to Seattle, have you been to Seattle? No. You should go to Redmond and go to Microsoft's campus, and then go and then talk to people in the community of Bellevue and some other communities that, that um, and Renton that sort of ring Microsoft. That those communities, it's sort of like I was talking about before with Xerox mm, and, and Kodak. Um, Kodak. Yeah, that these are these these communities are built around Microsoft millions. I mean, yeah. that, uh, that are pumped hundreds and t- tens mm. and tens and hundreds and hundreds of millions that have been pumped into that economy for a long time, yeah. and really made that so. It's, you know, it's an interesting company. No, these I mean, look, I, a good friend of mine, I mean, I was joking about all of that stuff, but mm-hmm. I have a good friend that works at Microsoft in New York City, and okay. he loves it. He does yeah. love it. I mean, what does he love? He's, um, he's a startup advocate yeah. for Microsoft, so he's got a really unique role. What's his name? Frank. You know Frank. I know Frank. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm sitting here saying, okay, yeah, yeah, you know Frank. Yeah. I was going to say, you yeah. You introduced me to Frank, right? Exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cross-border. Yeah. Shout out to Frank. He's dope. Um, but yeah, no, he loves it. It's a yeah. great company. He's got a really great role there. Yeah, he does. Um, he really gets to be himself. I think yeah. that's the most important thing. And then obviously in London, we have uh, Winnie, yeah. who works at Microsoft as well. So, And do you know Ian McDonald, who is the CTO for their, their accelerator program? No, I'm not familiar. He was at... He was at um, SwiftKey, oh, and then he went and he took over this role. And he is—he's a big advocate, and he's one of the people who helps us with deal flow, also. So Microsoft has been for me, yeah, a very effective moment that I work from because I only worked for them for six, six months, months, yeah. But then uh, has been sort of still continuing to deliver, and they—and some of their programs are very interesting that they have for supporting, mm. particularly around their particularly around their Azure service. Um, which allow, which is you know, cloud computing and the like, and making that available to entrepreneurs. Yeah. It's like, so all those things, they have assets, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right, I want to switch gears now. 
and I want to talk about again. Impact. Yeah, we okay. got we got to take it up again now. Okay. So I want to talk about Impact X. Okay. The real you reason you're here. Okay. Yes. <laughs> but you didn't talk about Swift. You didn't talk about um. Uh, you didn't. We didn't talk about um touch surgery. We didn't touch. We didn't talk about touch surgery. It's okay. We could talk about touch surgery if you would like to talk about touch surgery. It's okay. I don't know. I feel like. I don't, do people know touch surgery? Because it's a it's unless you're from the medical world, mm. unless you're in you know, I don't know augmented reality for surgery. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> you're like yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Let's get into it. Okay. I was but gonna hop for, over it. Okay. Let's, just a sec. Okay. Because you were you were at touch surgery for what was it? Two years. Two years. Okay. I actually knew one of their designers. He actually worked with me on one of my um, Who, products. Who's that? A guy called um, Alex. Not Alex. Um, Otto. Andrew oh Otto. No. Oh, no, no, oh my no. God, I Okay, you, you and I, are, we'll, we'll, we'll come up with the right name. Because yeah. you probably are correct, and I am probably missed it. Yeah, he was, um, he was our designer for my first app, actually. And then he went to... And he's, is he still he, there? He's been at Touch Surgery for three years. Oh, good. So then we would have overlapped just a little bit. Yeah, definitely. He was um, at PlayStation before. Hmm. He escaped me. Anthony! Ant- Anthony, yes. Yeah. I know Anthony. <laughs> yes. So Anthony, so Anthony really did your first? Anthony Inwood. Yes. Yeah. Anthony is the person who introduced me to Pinky to Pinky Blinders. Ah. <laughs> is that the name of the show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pinky Blinders. Pinky. I don't actually watch it though. Everyone talks I don't about it. See, because he was going to a costume party, and he and his brother were very big into it, and yeah, so they yeah, were yeah. wearing uh, they were wearing the costume, and that was my first introduction. He's also a photographer, so he photographed yeah, 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 yeah. a lot of things. He's yeah, I do, I do know Anthony. Yeah, Anthony, right? yeah, I know. Yeah, he was um one of my first designers. Was first it? app? Yeah. yeah. Well, me shout out to time. him too. Yeah, shout out to Anthony, man. There you go. I've been talking to him for a minute, but yeah. yeah, cool. All right, touch surgery. So, what was your role at touch surgery? So, yeah, um, and for those who don't know what touch surgery is, explain. touch surgery is an tar- touch surgery is trying to solve a very basic problem. Five point five billion people in the world do not have access to safe surgery. Right. So that's not just uh, that's just not a sort of surgery that is associated with choice but necessary surgery. Mm. And so if indeed you look at that number, how do we actually increase the number of surgeons who are available? What often happens is, say, if you were in a place, the developing country where there are very few surgeons per 10,000 people, what you might do is train some more surgeons, and those surgeons may then find jobs with the NHS, right? Right. So they and they might migrate away, or they might, they might stay, and they might sort of um, serve the community. No one can be an expert in every kind of surgery. And if you have a very small number of surgeons to necessary surgeries and then elective surgeries, what you end up with is you end up with long waiting periods, yep. et cetera, et cetera. We, we've experienced that, yes. correct? We know that. So what you so what Touch Surgery wanted to do was to make sure, and it was started by two um, tr- doctor trainees from Imperial College, who, from Imperial, who had met in medical school. And they said there's a better way of training people. And that better way of training people so we can get people through faster. And not only can we get people through faster, but we can make them more expert at a variety of surgeries. Mm. So that indeed you don't just have to be a plastics um, surgeon. You don't just have to be an ENT, you know, ear, nose, and throat. You can actually then, with that basic sort of surgical knowledge and using touch surgery, you can learn other procedures. Mm. And then you can become expert in those. And that is a great idea. And the idea was training-oriented. It's app-based, so it's free. Download it if you want and learn how to do a tracheotomy. So <laughs> but don't perform yeah. it. I mean, yeah. I'm not doing anything on Saturday, so you, I might as well. Yeah, you might as well. You're just a little bored to learn to do a tracheotomy. Um, but 
that it, by doing that, you give people practice ahead of time. You get them to be very comfortable with the steps, steps one through 600 that are involved. And then when they go into the operating room, they can form more easily. Right. Think about that if you are a resident, if you're an intern, if you're a medical student. Mm. It helps to increase your accelerate knowledge your base learning, yeah. and accelerate your learning. Then the question was, can't we do that same? Th- can't we do something similar by going over the threshold into the operating room? And if we can do that, then you can actually reduce, not only train people faster, but you might be able to reduce the kind of level of education that they can need mm. in order to be able to do that. So if you can take the steps and you say, follow these steps, not only do you help to organize the operating room, because operating rooms are very dynamic. You have a vacation today. Someone else is off sick. It's not the same group that's performing. Right, right. And so I don't know what you, Surgeon Phil, want to do or you, Surgeon Karen, want to have happen. So what I need to do is I need to spend some time actually getting everyone oriented and then mistakes can happen and things can happen and we can just slow things down and because we're in uh, the world where time is cure time is surgery Mm. you want to make sure that things are moving along pretty well so to help to orient people in the operating room to use workflows that are associated with pre-planned activities and to get everybody this is what your role is going to be. This is what your role is going to be. When I say this is what I want you to do, making all that very transparent, it's a great way to accelerate surgery. I would hope that eventually it would also help us as we think about what is doctor-assisted surgery, so robotic augmented surgery and that Mm. sort of thing. So you can imagine then that, again, makes it a little bit easier then to get more surgeons out in the world, more surgeons trained, more surgeries actually executed. And that's what that organization does. Do you think that is, I mean, I think, I I mean, no one, especially Anthony, never explained it to me like that, first of all. Mm. (laughs) But do you think, though, by creating creating this technology, does it, I don't know, I think, you know, when it comes to health Mm -hmm. and surgery and Mm -hmm. lives, Mm -hmm. you know, people want to know that you've been properly trained by another doctor and ideally done this in real life or if not practiced practice mm-hmm. this in some way shape or form do you think i mean ultimately this is kind of like i don't know i don't want to you know simplify this but it's like udemy right it's like mm-hmm. Kodakami. it's like okay let me learn of course you need to have the basic foundations to be a surgeon in the first place mm-hmm. you have to have gone to school you have to be a doctor etc but now you're it's, it's like stacking knowledge right you're stacking on top of your knowledge mm-hmm. and like i don't know i don't know how i would feel if i knew someone learned how to do this using augmented reality. I don't know, because it's just, it's not real. It's not real, right? And if the first time you're performing this, mm-hmm. you've only done it online mm-hmm. or through this app, I don't know if that's, I mean, does the NHF approve of this? I mean, I don't they know. Do. They do. Um, I mean, you have people at Stanford being trained through this, Yale being trained like this, Harvard yeah, being trained through yeah. this. This is part of residency programs. What I would say is, the world is changing, right? There is. There used to be a time where you had maybe a lot of cadavers, so cadavers are the you know bodies that are donated by people right, to do, right, for right. people to practice on. Yes. Well, there are fewer and fewer cadavers necessary, and you know, and the, and that's one of the ways you learn anatomy, and that's mm. one way that you learn cutting and all sorts of things. There are few, and then the people are saying, well, remember we used to use pigs and other sorts yeah, of things yeah, yeah. for practice, and so you would take a pig and you would basically, you know, they might recover, but the idea was that you were trying to do something that was less, that was less human. Um, encumbering do you do want us to so you want people to have practice but you don't want to be the practice person no i don't and so we want people to have practiced beforehand and so the question of where is that practice going to happen in what sort of an environment are they going to be able to do that but you know in terms of fighter pilots you know in turn and airline pilots 
simulation, simulation is very right. part is very much athletes, elite athletes. Simulation is part of what many people believe then creates performance. Right. What we don't want to do is have people practicing as they're performing. Mm-hmm. You want less of that, right? Right. And if what I'm doing is the only time I have to sit with you, so Phil is the expert surgeon and Eric is the is the person who's the apprentice surgeon and using an apprentice method, I watch you, I assist you, you watch me, you then I do it on my own. It's not quite that fast, but that's a relatively slow process. And you don't get that many chances because right. in medical school you might have you have more than one person in a class, so it's not like one person gets all the attention. If mm-hmm. you have that, it's even the problem's even worse. So getting your rehearsal done ahead of your performance is exactly what we're looking for. Actors, the yeah. same way. Yeah. So we don't, don't want you to practice. You know, don't become Tina Turner on, on in the West End, yeah. <laughs> and your rehearsal is the performance that I'm paying. You know, a hundred pounds to see. Yeah. Instead, let's do that behind the scenes. Yeah. And so it's not going to be with a real. It's not going to be with a real. Audience, it's not going to be with a real sort of direct, but it's going to be something that allows you when you actually get in front, and it doesn't have to be with a cadaver, it doesn't have to be with a pig, but when you actually get in front, you actually have better sort of knowledge and holistic knowledge. So I think simulation is actually the future. The yeah. current, it's a, it's current, and then it's also the future. I think almost every medical school uses simulation. Yeah, no, all right, I'm converted. Well done. There you go. <laughs> so I um, should we should we schedule your yeah, your, your yeah, surgery? yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll use the app. I'll use the app. Yeah. No. Okay. No. That's no. That's super interesting. And no, I think you know. Even when Anthony went over there and I looked into touch surgery, it looked super interesting. Mm-hmm. And at the time when he joined, it was super early as well. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, I know you, there's a I know a few doctors that work there. Um, Cos, Doctor Cos. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, look, it's a cool company. They're still around. Costas, you know, Costas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's yeah. A big lad, you know. Big. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I am confident of that. Since he's probably going to listen to this podcast. Yeah, he's, I mean, I've got him on Facebook. He's yeah. very fit. Let's just No, say yeah, that's how we connected, fit. actually, because we were oh, like really? talking about bodybuilding and stuff okay. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, no, 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 no. It's, it's super interesting. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, that now. That is not something that I had anticipated. I had not anticipated this co- that part of the conversation. One thing that I had, I would say, social impact is what that organization has in space. Yes, yeah. So does so does Swift Key. Do, you know the reason that do you know the reason why this the the kind the disabilities market is what this all predictive technology was about. Right. Sort of if a person can only move a finger and uh, eye, how do you get them to be able to communicate uh, more good. effectively? Uh. Keep talking, talking was one of the was one of the um, programs that we actually worked with Intel on because how do you improve the ability for people who have severe motor neuron disease or something mm. else? How do you get them to be able to communicate as effective as they'd like yeah. to? So that's how this whole that whole category started. So for me, social impact has been one of the choices I've made. Even I told you about Mobile Posse, the idea of where are people who are who are on one side of the digital divide, what are they likely to be looking for and what are they likely to be looking at? It's a cell phone. All those things fit into this idea, which has for me been very, very important, yeah. that we, if we're going to do investing, if we're going to be working on companies, if we're going to be helping to build wealth for a group of LPs, we also need to be having a great social impact. Mm. It's, a po- it's possible to do. And so that's one of the ethoses that we brought and one of the pieces of our mission at ImpactX. That's good. That's good. I like how you tied that touch surgery to ImpactX. That's good. Now, that makes for a good segue <laughs> into ImpactX. Isn't that why you invited me to <laughs> yeah. I, This is exactly why I invite you, Eric. Um, so ImpactX, mm-hmm. we spoke about it in the beginning with your introduction. But again, ImpactX, diversity focus, uh, underrepresented, mm-hmm. underestimated founders. 
um, which I is like another. Your, I like your adjectives. Yeah, they're good. They're good. Yeah, um, they so with the with the Impact X, tell us why you started it, and tell us what your plans are for Impact X. We started it because there is a great opportunity that exists in Europe to create significant financial return and social impact by focusing on a group that has been underinvested. So it's very easy, I believe, in the UK. I, I've talked to a number of firms. I was talking to one the other day um, that has a, that their focus is on the Nordics. So mm. they focus, and I've said, like, why would you focus on the Nordics? Because there's opportunity in the Nordics. It's like, Okay. okay. <laughs> there is. And there is. Spotify there is. and other sorts of organizations. They're sensational organizations. That are Title. Yeah. yeah. And when I talk then about, um, when I talk about ImpactX, I think the same thing. Hmm. And that is our thesis. That indeed, there are in various regions, in various places, that there, that, you know, talent is agnostic to any of those sort of factors. Capital is not agnostic. So capital goes is is invested in a way which often seems to be focused on replicating sort of the funders views of the world. Right. And that's fine. What we believe is that that has then left a hole that is a green field and that we should go to where the green field is and spend our time there mm. because that is where we're going to find the most opportunity. We're going to find the best deals, the best teams, and we're also going to find the best valuations. And that's where we have gone. And we believe that uh, based on, and you just look at the numbers, if less than 4% of venture funding goes to female-led teams, if less than 1% goes to black-led teams, this is in the United States and then that, that exists elsewhere in the world, then the place where you should be able to find opportunity is those sorts of places. Yeah. Because there's an under-indexing based on just populations. And we found ourselves to be pretty successful at uncovering. So we've been able to uncover a large number of companies, and they're in our, our pipeline now. So we have about 400 companies that we've been able to identify. Wow. Uh, less than that that we've actually then talk, spoken with, and then less than that that we've obviously, because there's always a funnel, and the, in which we've invested, but that we have found ourselves to be pretty pleasantly surprised. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, it's not pleasantly surprised. We, <laughs> yeah. have, we have found what we thought we'd find, yeah. that there are lots yeah. of good ideas, there are lots of good entrepreneurs, and there are lots of new business models, interesting services, interesting features and functions that are coming yeah. out of these organizations. I guess the question is, why do you think that is, right? Like, you've like the situation, the is. situation. Why do you think the situation is the way it is? I mean, what you've spent less than a year or so in London on this idea as a VC, looking at it from a VC's lens, right? Mm -hmm. And like you said, you found 400 companies of underrepresented, underestimated founders. I have a confession to make, right? I started looking at entrepreneurship and venture capital when I was in university, right? We had to write a, a thesis to get out of school, and mine was on the um, governmental um, responses and um, policies to increase entrepreneurship in the United States. And I studied venture capital funds. I did a follow-up when I graduated from law school. You had to do a third-year paper there. So I've been looking at venture mm. for quite some time. And in fact, one summer at a law firm in Atlanta, and yeah. there was a black partner in the law firm, and he was the only black partner in the law firm, and he worked on venture capital deals. Mm. That's what he did. He dealt with Atlanta Air, which doesn't no longer exists, Caribbean Cool, which is a drinks manufacturer. So, you know, he had a portfolio of these companies that were run. All of them were black 
founded and led. And we studied them. I got to write reports on them and go to um, listen to their pitch meetings and go help them with their funding. And so I actually have spent a good deal of time. When I came to the UK, I came in a venture back company. The second company that I came to was a venture back company. Uh, and then we are a venture company because I, I feel as though at this stage it's time and I found a like-minded group of people who also feel as though it's time to put our money where our mouth is and to put our resources, to pool our resources. And then that just, that just doesn't mean financial resources but our network and others in order to be able to um, address an opportunity. The reason the opportunity exists is really your question, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know why the opportunity exists, other than I believe that in many cases, and I think I've seen this, I've seen some of the most interesting fintech companies that I've heard of, and and several of them come from young black women mm. here in the UK. And I believe when someone looks listens to the idea, the idea appears to them to be a great idea. And then the question is, do, is this the person mm. who I imagine would have the great idea and then be able to implement. There's so many levels and layers you have to go through yeah. in order to. And quite frankly, this person's probably going to come in, this young black woman is going to be coming in with no introduction, probably coming in cold without sort of, you know, Phil saying, oh, she's sensational. Yeah. She, This is the person. She's already built 14 businesses. You've got to, you, you know, I'm going to put money in behind her. All those things right. probably aren't happening, right. which then leads to the likelihood that, that she's just not going to get the investment mm. and that this opportunity, which could be out in the world and really helping, doesn't happen at all or gets bootstrapped and therefore doesn't happen at the scale in the way that it probably could right. and therefore have the effect. And that's one of the and that's one of the things that I see I, I, I see seems to happen um, when there is a idea. Now, if that person said, I have the idea for a record, and it's a grime or a drill record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe people say, "I get that." Yeah, and I can I can tell you exactly where to go. For yeah, that. and I know you're going to be the person to. And I know you're going to be the person to do it for no so, reason. So there's something there. Unconscious and bias. Unconscious bias. Yeah. Okay, so tell me what your what your my my theory. So my theory is it's very simple. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, Diversity VC published some data not too long ago mm -hmm. around venture capital and like you know what. You know what the caricature of a VC tends to be, mm -hmm. um, and what they uncovered was that less than eight percent of VCs have operational experience. Yes, in the UK. Yes. So I, I think that's, that's there might not be much better in. Yeah, I would imagine so, but mm -hmm. you know we'll, we'll keep it UK focused at the time mm -hmm. for this time. Um, so I'm thinking, okay, less than eight percent of these guys who have the money actually knows what it takes to build something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't care how many books you've read mm -hmm. or how many companies you've seen, you just don't know what it's like to be on the ground. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think when they see an operator who doesn't look like they thought an operator would look like, mm -hmm. they don't understand the hustle, they don't understand the grind, they don't understand like what it actually takes to start a company. So there's a lack of communication, there's a lack of understanding of one another. Mm -hmm. So again, you know, people hear all the time, investors invest in people that they like or people they understand, not ideas. But if you don't understand me and you don't know me, especially mm -hmm. the fact that you haven't operated, so you're basically telling me everything I've done up until this point doesn't really matter or doesn't count for much. Mm -hmm. You don't really understand what it takes to start something. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where the other disparity comes from as well, the fact that the less VCs are actual operators. I believe also, you and I, I think, are in violent agreement. Um, I think we're saying the similar thing in a different way 
And I believe um, in my part of the world, we say you're preaching to the choir, right? Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I know, you're, you're definitely in that 8% of operators. So, uh, and what I do believe that um, one of the, f- one of the f- results of this is that we end up with a number of people getting credit for attributes or attributes sort of projected onto them that they might not have proven, mm. but... You know, a person across the table can see themselves and they can say, at that age, I was like this. Yeah. And I sometimes think it's hard to see themselves in this other, in this other person. Um, not, they could not, because they're not an operator, or this other person because they're a woman, or this other person because they, uh, their parents originated in Nigeria. It's just a yeah. whole series of yeah. things yeah. which cause people to say, that's not what I'd expect. Mm. And, you, you know. I, the funny thing is about Impact X is Impact X says that doesn't matter. We, we can't worry about that. And so why we are where we are, we are where we are. And when I was looking for my first venture capital funding decades ago, we were same place. And we've got to do something about this. And yeah. so this group has gotten together. And I would say a group because it's not just me and even the executive team or the investment team that's been, that does the sourcing and the evaluation of um, companies, but then also our founding membership, which is an extraordinary thing to have that set of resources that are not at the table, but they are certainly in the room with mm. us to help to um, make sure that what we are able to provide to entrepreneurs that are in our portfolio is their experience, their network, their set of resources that have a particular spin on them. These are people all of whom at the moment are black, actually. They're black um, French, black British, black American, and all of them have been successful in the system as it currently exists. So these are people who don't just come with a theory of how to succeed and how to distribute products and how to start companies because of our, say, 20, 21 um, founding members. Of those, we have um, five that are serial entrepreneurs, We've got then um, three, no, we have four investment bankers. Mm. We have, it just it's a, it's a group, we have seven CEOs. So we have a group, or managing directors, we have a group of people who are able to move in multiple circles, right. are able to understand from, because they are parents, mm. they are inve- angel investors, They've got a lot of hats that they wear, and all of which are helpful for our portfolio of companies, which we now have about 11 companies in which we've um, invested, yeah. four technology companies, and then a host of other sorts of things. Yeah, no, that's, no, that's, that's dope. And like for you know, people in London who are thinking about raising capital, how should they be going about raising capital? Because I believe not everybody needs venture capital, of course. Talk about that a little bit, because I'm, I'm a big... Can, can, can I give you a pet peeve? Go on. Now, so this will, I'm sure this will be the only thing that actually makes the podcast. <laughs> no, it's all going to make it. Don't my, my, my pet peeve, Phil, is that people pitch all the time. I think you and I actually talked about this once, yeah. that there is such a culture. I, maybe it comes from Shark Tank. Maybe it comes from The Apprentice. But there is such a culture and there's such a perception that pitching is, is an important skill, right. and it is. Being able to talk about what it is that's important, the fundamentals of your business, and being able to convey those in a succinct fashion and, and a way that can attract investment, that's an important thing. Mm. However, 
the reason that you pitch is because you're looking for external money, mm-hmm. generally. It's yeah. not that you're necessarily pitching for customers and that type of thing, although that will that does happen too. But when I'm talking about pitching, I'm talking about classic pitch for an institutional investor. Right. And when I think about, or, or a, um, or a um, angel investor, and when I think about that, I think that there is so much time and effort put into that as opposed to the time and effort that could be put into, that should be put, not could be, but should be put yeah. into executing against our plan, hitting some milestones, some tangibles that make it when you're ready to, when you're ready to pitch, that you actually have something which is a bit more valuable that then actually gets you a higher valuation, gets you the right sort of strategic uh, investors who can help mm, you mm. and can give you the right sorts of resources. So that when you come to Impact Dex, you come not with, oh, I have an idea, no business plan, no no forecast, no projections, and no traction. Mm. It's not very, we're, we're, there are organizations out there that are great at finding nascent ideas and sort of finding diamonds in the rough. Yeah. We're really looking for, but we think there are organizations that do that really, really well already. They're called incubators, they're called accelerators, they're called... And the colleges and universities have these sorts of programs. Yeah. For us, we're looking for organizations that are ready to take institutional funding right. of a certain type that right. can help you to. And we're a little bit closer to exit than we are to entry. Mm. So that's what we're. That, we are funders who are sort of a little bit down the road. And I think that all of those are necessary. It's not that we believe that none of the others should exist, but we do believe that we want to work with in with entrepreneurs and teams that have spent a bit of time actually refining and actually proving, getting some proof points together. And a proof point is not a slick presentation. Mm. It is actually some customers. It's actually some prototypes. It's actually some testing. All of those things are, are very, very useful. Business models, those are the things which we find very attractive. Yeah. So you're looking for guys who are further down the line. We're looking for women and men who You're are looking for guys. I mean, I use the term the guys, not necessarily to say <laughs> in a generic men. fashion. Yeah, right? it's just yeah. you know people. But we're yeah, we're looking for, we're looking for people. We are we are looking for people. That's yeah, true. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we are looking for people who are who have um, product market fit. Yeah. That's important to us. That they have a they don't have to have had a paid they don't have to have paid customers, but they need to have sort of prototypes that can lead to that, or they need to have um, proof of concepts that can lead to unpaid um, uh, and pilots that can lead to paid um, relationships. They should have some sort of, or in, an alternative is that they have some n- traction metric that might be associated with number of users, or they might have a traction metric, metric which is associated with um, sort of scholarly articles written about the science behind their product. There are a number of things that we can yeah. use, but they, we are looking for traction. Okay. And traction's important. No, I think traction's important, and I think... Um you know, I think that when it comes to first-time founders, especially, especially, you know, I'm definitely guilty of this at some mm-hmm. point, or I was guilty of this. I think there's a bit of a uh, naivete around fundraising and mm-hmm. when to seek out institutional investment. Um, so can you talk a little bit about kind of like the ideal, maybe the, the last investment that you guys done? You know, who were they? Uh, you know, what stage were they at? And more importantly, how did they get in contact with you? Because I want to talk about that whole notion of the warm intro. Um, and I don't know if you read the article by Kendred VC, which is getting some backlash on Twitter. Hmm. Um, no, well, you have to remind me. Maybe I have read, but I do want to hear. I will, I will. But yeah, talk to me about, before we get into that, talk to me about a company that you recently invested in. You know, what stage were they at? Uh, why did you guys invest? Mm-hmm. Um, and how did the whole you know deal come about? I'm going to be very specific about this. There's a company that we've in, in which we've invested called Pace. 
So PACE is a revenue optimization solution. It's AI-driven. It's a SaaS-based business model. It is. Um, it has been tested in market here in Europe, and it is seeking to expand to the United States. It uses a series of inputs to determine, to help chains and individual hostelries as well as hotels to decide what kind of pricing they should have for rooms based on a series of inputs. And where most organizations are doing that based on a spreadsheet and sort of, you know, trying to look at last year's comparables, this helps them to make much better decisions much faster and then to be able to test those over time. So the company was started by three people, and the founders are a diverse founder pool. One in which we are particularly interested, outside of a professor who's out of Atlanta, there's one who, we're, who we, we were particularly close with who is a, went to university at MIT, went to graduate school at Stanford, got his PhD here at Oxford or Cambridge, I can't remember which one, was a venture partner in a firm, wow. had started another company, and partnered with a professor who was doing some cutting-edge um, AI work in out of Georgia Tech, who and another and the CEO is a guy who came out of Izettel. So it's an organization that actually knows space very well, actually knows fundraising very well, actually knows metrics and building, knows how to put together a beautiful financial model, knows how to um, set uh, a set of forecasts and then achieve them, and is especially good about execution. So that's the kind of company that we find. And this is not the only one. This is just one that we were able to get them over the line more quickly because they were so well prepared. They right, had right. Our, our diligence process is very, very comprehensive, and so they were able to. Act, we were able to get through diligence quite quickly with them. Um, although they were oversubscribed, and we had to talk our way in as strategic. <laughs> well, seriously, we really did wow. because they didn't. They didn't have to have our money. And most, many of the companies that we're finding don't need our money, but we then, for strategic reasons, come in um, and you know obviously put money into the into the deal. So I would say that organizations like that are sort of ideal. It's just, it's th that's quite straightforward, right? right? Other, and that one is, uh, they'll be raising a Series A in, um, they'll be raising a Series A in 2020. Um, so I would say that that's a company about which we're very excited. Now, when people hear that, it's an enterprise-to-enterprise -enterprise business. It's SaaS, it's AI, it's sort of, you know, sort of ticks all the startup checkboxes. It does, but it also, but it's not consumer, right? Right. So it, it's not something that they will be seeing. It's not Snapchat. Yeah, yeah. So the so for us, you know, that one is relatively comfortable. What we'd like to see is more fintech, and we have one fintech invest. We have one fintech investment. We have one insuretech investment. So there are a number of these investments that we're finding. We uh, but we see a lot of health and beauty. Mm -hmm. And then we, but we're not finding as much traction data with them and sort of growth. Um, so we're trying to work as to sort of making sure that we can get a product that actually works for them. Um, because as you said, and I want to come all the way back, you said some, maybe venture is not useful for everyone. Risk capital, we're looking for a certain type of return. It drives certain behaviors and we're right. looking for a certain type of return in a certain period. We are not 
We are patient people, but we are not patient capital. Yeah. <laughs> we are charitable in our view of the world, but we are not a charity. Mm. So quite frankly, when people come to us, the, you, you have to come with your game because you are talking to people who are saying to their LPs, our limited partners, that we're going to deliver to you at least 3x and hopefully over 10x back to you within a limited period of time. So we're looking for growth organizations that have those sorts of metrics. And people who understand that and can, gen- and can talk through that are the ones who can, we can hear most easily. Right. When we have to sort of pull all that out and there are no sort of financials that we can look at and there's no forecast because, you know, we don't need to have one or it's just not something that we've done yet, we'll have to work with you. But then it takes a bit longer mm. because we have LPs. We have institutions and high net worth individuals who expect a certain amount of diligence that's associated. And we wouldn't do anything else. We put through diligence. We put together valuation models. And all of those are very intense process. Our, our deal memos are 30 pages. Wow. And the um, and then our um, financial models are multi 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 tab because you know all of the um, all of the sensitivity analysis that we do all of the conversation that we have to have about when future needs are scenario for analysis it's very important but do you, I mean it's critical it it sounds I don't know I don't know Eric I mean I understand mm-hmm. but at the same time I don't know if it's necessary what do you mean. I mean, because, I mean, there's a few VCs I've spoken to in the past, and some mm. of them are like, you know, we don't look at business plans. Or they were like, we don't, because no one no one can predict the future. Right. And I think if you're going to be super, like, pragmatic about it, every VC, I mean, if it, even if you're going to be super pragmatic, mm-hmm. as a founder, you know, every financial forecast is going to have the same outcome, right? It's the hockey stick up to the right, right? Like, it's, just, it's the same, it's mm-hmm. the same model. And I, I just don't know if, you know, even if you go through all those scenarios and that analysis, you're still going to get that outcome. You don't so necessarily I, get a prediction of what is going to be the next Airbnb. You certainly never get that. No. But what you actually get is you get an aligned statement that along with the entrepreneur, because we work very closely with the entrepreneur, we're saying this is the plan we're working toward. Right. So this is what we're going So don't be surprised when next quarter I ask you these questions or don't be upset <laughs> because you, you and I have agreed that these are the things that we need to be measuring to know that you're on track. Because the thing we can't do, and no one allows, if you, especially if you're taking institutional money, is to say, well, maybe it'll... Think about WeWork. Yeah. Think about what just has happened. Oh, man, think, about what, think about what Mastan has said recently. Yeah. He said that we're going to be looking for companies that make money. So the question of, are we in a period... <laughs> really? Is he looking for companies that make money? That sounds but, so but that have bus- <laughs> But have business models early. Many companies, and you know, there's been a time when those things haven't been necessarily important. Top it's of like mind, yeah. Spend money, yeah. and we'll get there eventually. We'll come up with yeah. a business model that works because you've got an audience or you've got distribution. Yeah. Though I've never been in those companies, and I've been in a number. I've been in probably four or five venture-backed companies, and everyone, when I get to a funding round, these are the things all of... I've always had to do. Yeah. I, I don't quite understand. So I understand that there are people who say that and they're probably much more successful than I am. But I'm like, where? how do you then make a decision? Now, if it's your money, wow. maybe you can do that. Or maybe you're doing it just based on your reputation and you, yeah. and you plan to deliver results. Yeah. I'm a person who likes to be able to say to my LPs and to my and another constituency that I'm always appealing to is my, um, my portfolio companies. I want to say we're all looking at the same thing. We're all preaching. Thing, we're yeah. all looking. For, we're all singing from the same hymnal. Yeah, yeah. And that hymnal has all the same words. So all this right. is what we're going to look at. Yeah. You agree? You agree? Well, let's go I forward. Guess, again, well, I mean, I guess because you guys are a lot further down the line mm-hmm. in terms of the companies that you look at, it makes more sense because if you're looking for companies that have product market fit, 
you know, they have revenue, they have customers, then yeah, there's a bit more data to actually kind of formulate mm-hmm. educated type of guesses ultimately. Mm-hmm. That's what forecasters are, right? mm-hmm. educated guesses. As I guess, as opposed to someone who is a lot earlier in their career in the mm-hmm. startup ecosystem. But I guess the, then my question is... Can I say one thing? Yeah, go Maybe ahead. this is the difference between being an operator. Yeah. I put together operating plans. Okay, there so we go. So my operating plans are next well, this next year, so in January I need to put, well, in December I have to put before the board, this is what we're going to do next year, and these are the assumptions that are driving that, and this is what we're going to achieve. It's the same thing that will happen if I become a public company, yeah. which I've hoped to one of these days become a public company with one of these, with one of these sort of organizations. But then th- this is what is actually required. The, you can't sort of escape those steps. You can, you can alter the, the song a little bit, and you can improvise That's on top awesome. of it. Yeah. But, you know, even Amazon still has to report. You know, they might not report everything that everyone wants to know, but they still have to report. No, they still have to predict, yep. and they still have to say what this, what's going to happen. Yeah. So it's just it's also just good. Why why come up with something then new later on? You just start off. It's like muscle memory. You and mm. I, you and I know about working out. You better than me. <laughs> but you know, you work out and you start off with the correct. You start off with the correct form. Yeah. Because and the, start off with the correct breathing because that's going to sustain you over time. You don't start off. I can get results, but they're crazy results. Sometimes that works. Mm. But if you're going to continue and you're going to make this a habit of life, you might as well get into the habit early. Yeah, and that's good. So these are what I say. So when people and people say to me, "I'm so surprised. I ne- I didn't realize that I would get so much pushback." And <laughs> we don't do budgets and forecasts. Like really? How yeah. do you know what you're going to be doing? Insane. Yeah. How do you know how to spend? How you're going to spend your money and allocate it? It's just yeah. going to happen. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, so I'm very much, I, I, and you know what? I have got to suspend my disbelief because there could be something in what they're saying that I just don't realize. And so one of the things that I'm working on is not just jumping to the conclusion that the way that I've done it in the past mm. is the way, just because I've had some exits and just because that has, I've you know, been able to do a certain number of things doesn't mean that's the only way to do things. All this is about disruption. All this is about new opportunity. All right. of this is about seeing the world differently. Right. So maybe that's it. However, I do believe there's some business elements. That no, of course, are, of course. And I guess good hygiene. Yeah, I think when I, I guess more to the show when I'm thinking about startup hamidans and I'm thinking about the type of founder that listens to the show. You know, they're probably a lot earlier on mm-hmm. in their career as a startup founder. So, you know, hearing what you've just said might be super intimidating to them in terms of. You know, multi-tab <laughs> analysis. They're going to be like, what the hell is this? What's he talking about? Sensitivity analysis. They're going to be like, what's that? I mean, they shouldn't. They should know what those things are. Um, but I guess it's just like thinking about, again, what stage are you at mm-hmm. in your startup career and like figuring out when is the right time to reach out to an impact tech. Like, That's exactly it. That's it. Please don't. You don't need to reach out to us tomorrow. If yeah. you're not ready, you only get one first impression. Mm. And your first impression should be sensational right not just good there's i've just said that there are 400 companies that we've seen right over 400 companies that we've seen and we're going to probably look at every year we hope to be able to identify 500 companies a year so the question of if you come in and there are 500 companies there are 499 other companies and if you're not sort of at your best and mm. you want to be at your best you're performing in the olympics it's not like you're performing, you know, at home. It's a perform- this is the rehearsal thing again. This yeah. is the performance. So everything should be as 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 um, effective as possible. And if you're not ready, then you know there are other places, and we can even recommend other places, and we can uh, we can tell you where to go. And then from there, there's the opportunity to be ready when you come to see us. The sad thing is, the the when we look at the um, 
the need, and we sort of try and measure the financial need, a capital need that exists, it's hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds mm. that are necessary around Europe to actually fund all the dreams and aspirations of um, and the wonderful products that are out there that are being started by underrepresented entrepreneurs, probably and more m- multiple billions, in fact. And the question is, you know, are we going to be able to continue raising money to be able to invest in great organizations? Right. Only if we're able to get a return. Mm-hmm. That's the game I have to play. So my metric is, Eric, can you get a return? Have you proven that you can get a return? So you can go with all the sort of assumptions that you'd like. Uh, you can go with all of the hopes and prayers that mm. you want. But at the end of the day, we're going to determine if we're going to put more money into you based on how you've done in your past. And so that's that's the reality of it. Yeah. No, that's good. And like, I guess in your experience, you've been on both sides of the pond as an operator. Mm-hmm. What do you see lacking in kind of UK entrepreneurs or more specifically UK black entrepreneurs? I, I think it's really a lack of capital. I, I think that's the major thing. And Nothing in terms... So when every entrepreneur you've met, you've been impressed with and you thought, okay. Well, Phil, there was you at one end of yeah, the spectrum, yeah, yeah. At the high end of the spectrum, and there yeah. are others, everyone else is behind. Got it. But um, I would say that... No, I haven't noted that there are any that there are any sort of real lacking. There's some anything lacking that's um, so detrimental. I would say that on a... I think what I often find is people who have been toiling away for a long time and try and reduce their aspirations to what is the accepted level of attainment for them. Meaning that what they do is they might start off saying, I need five million... And five million is really what they need in order to make this make something happen, and then eventually I end up they end up asking, trying to raise two hundred fifty thousand from some um, from some uh, angels. That's kind of what I, I see, and not that sort. Of, and I see a tenaciousness and a willingness to bootstrap. But what I hope I'm not seeing is I hope I'm not seeing people um, turning down the intensity of their dreams such that it's acceptable mm. to someone to hear that, you know, you, uh, you, you, okay, I can put in a few pennies, I put a few, put, few, put a few pounds and a few pence because, you know, that's something that is pocket change for me and that's what we'll let you work with as opposed to, you know, you need the real, the, the, you need the real 100% mm. that looks very, very different and much, much, much more involved and actually requires more of a commitment on their part also. That's why I hope we're not sort of internalizing the idea that, you know, starting small and bootstrapping is a way to go for all companies. Some companies it is, but not for all companies. Not for all companies. Yeah. So that's something that I've seen, which I don't like. You think that's more of a case of the fact that there's a lack of capital and it's mm-hmm. the only way? Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, absolutely. It's the only way for some guys. I, yeah, that's, and that's what bothers me. And that, because I also think that I'm finding that we, we lack... We lack network here mm-hmm. and sort of a for-us-bias approach. It's not as though there's a collective which says, let us put together the money 
in order to be able to then do these things that we see as Intel Impact X to a certain extent. Mm. Um, I don't see enough of that. I see some of that. What was the name of the of the venture fund? Cornerstone. Cornerstone, right? So yeah. Cornerstone was doing it. There's some places that Cornerstone, are yeah, it. they're trying and they're quite new. And I and I think you know I haven't reached out to those guys yet. I'll probably connect with them soon. Yeah. But I do like the ethos behind. Okay, black LPs, black angels, yeah. let's fund black businesses. Yeah. Not focused on tech specifically. Right. Um, just black businesses in general. Yeah. And ours doesn't focus on tech only. It's just that we think that tech is the basis of everything. So we should right. put we should uh, we should enable and actually accelerate the success of organizations by making tech a portion of their conversation. Because I think even if you want to start a beauty products company, your beauty products company is going to probably go direct to consumer. So you have so tech is sort of do you are you going to be selling online uh, through an app? What are you going to be doing? So mm. I think tech is involved in almost every conversation. Certainly, even in with we even do creative projects. So the creative projects, the tech is absolutely involved there yeah and speaking about kind of networks um like i was saying earlier the kendred article so kendred vc basically spoke about the best way to get in contact with them right what did they say uh they basically said it has to come through someone in our network uh we're more likely to respond if it's (laughs) i mean yeah well this is the response on twitter (laughs) no no no, but it's true Um, they're like yeah we're more likely to respond if it's someone from our network you know Mm -hmm someone who sold a company or mm-hmm. someone who's done this. And then, you know, there's a lot of backlash because everyone's like, well, how is, you know, Johnny from the estate going to know your mates? So <laughs> before isn't, isn't that the up? answer to your other question? Why is it that the situation, you used to ask, what the, why, why do we, are, are we at this point? Yeah. Isn't that one of the yeah. reasons? Because but they seem to only think that that's the only way. <laughs> like the vast majority of VCs, especially in the UK, think that is the only way to solve any problem, like just come through our network. There are several VCs that have tried a different method, right? They've tried sort of a blind approach where you just sign up online. And you just send the deck. And you just send your deck, and they give you an answer in a certain period of time. Doesn't Ada Ventures do that also? Uh, probably. I'm not too so sure. So I think Ada Ventures does that. But please, don't don't quote me anybody, <laughs> but you can go look. And then there's another place out of, um, I think it's out of France. And they if, they, accept, if they accept your deck, which they accept almost everyone, they will put in it's either 25 or 50,000 euros or pounds into the company. So there are companies that do that mm. in an agnostic fashion um, and say that well, this is what we're, we're just support everybody. We're just going to make bets across the whole spectrum. Yeah. And this, if you come up with at least not just a deck, but you have to have done certain things. You have to input some financials and the like. And if you do that, we're going to give you money and then we'll see how it works. And we have a simplified format form that you sign, et cetera, done. I don't know that it's a, it's a terrible idea, but one of the things that you're trying to do with a venture capital firm is you're trying to get them, you're trying to use all the resources of it. You don't just need the money. Mm. Uh, you know, if you just need the money, then, you know, that would be a different matter. But right. most people are ho- hopefully looking for the connections that the venture connections, capital brings. Connections, operation network experience, effect. yeah, all yeah. that. So all of those types of things. So I would say, you know, even with us, I'm prob- we're probably guilty of having, because we're in stealth mode. How is it if we're in stealth mode? We have four hundred companies. We have yet. That's crazy. Have you have you looked at our website? Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, you give me feedback on it. It's just one page. Yeah, it's I'm like guys, what's going on here? <laughs> we're, try, we're trying not to sort of make 
all sorts of brand promises before we're ready to actually say yeah. how we're working in this particular space. We're yeah. coming up on a year. In We've incorporated back in November of last year, the end of November. So we're coming up on a year. We're ready to come out of stealth mode now because now we kind of know how we're operating. We now have done some investing. We've now put to, get to work some capital. Now we understand a little bit better. But to come out and say, oh, my goodness, we're raising 100 million pounds and we're going to be investing across Europe. Well, we hadn't done any of that. Now mm. we've actually done many of the things. We haven't invested fully across Europe. We haven't invested in all the categories, but we've actually started to make some investments. And they are, and there's some good-looking companies. So I would say that, um, but I would also say that of those 400 companies, a lot of them have come through introductions through our network. And because our network includes a lot of people of color, we get a lot of people of color. I mean, We've gotten, I, we get deals that have the person thought about it the la- yesterday mm. and have not incorporated that. We hear some of those. They don't go into our pipeline. And then we, and we have those that have been in business for 10 years um, and still making, you know, 50000 a year. That's crazy. Um, and so we have those companies also that we see. So, you know, but a lot of them do come through, I must say, come through word of mouth. But I mean, Phil, how many have you introduced me to? Would you I say? don't even know. I can't even count. Didn't you? And did you originally invite me to 10 by 10? Uh, yeah. So, Phil, if you think <laughs> about it, word of mouth has been exactly how Impact Dex has been able to find a large number. We don't, make, we don't hide ourselves, although we are in stealth mode. We're not hiding ourselves. And we are taking, we're not sort of turning people away and saying we won't meet with you. But we are you know, taking a lot yeah. of inbound. So then my, my question to, not you, but to the VCs listening is, mm-hmm. if you know that you only want to speak to founders through warm intros, and like you've said, you've, you guys are in stealth mode. Mm-hmm. You've seen over 400 black businesses in London. No, in Europe. In Europe, in okay, Europe. in Europe. Most VCs are European-based anyway. But you've seen 400 black founders in Europe. Mm-hmm. And VCs are always complaining about the pipeline problem, the pipeline problem. It's mm-hmm. just like talent. You know, we can't hire any black people. Mm-hmm. We don't know any black mm-hmm. people. They're not applying, blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah. It's like, why has no one taken the initiative to, or, or been intentional in sorting out those connectors like myself mm-hmm. or others mm-hmm. who can bring them that pipeline of diverse founders and the question is they just don't care <laughs> in my opinion because if you know like you just i mean you're a great example of this right mm-hmm. you and paula you're, you're both not from london absolutely right <laughs> mm-hmm. so how have you guys managed to come over across the pond mm-hmm. and find all of this underestimated talent mm-hmm. in europe but vcs who have been here for decades born and raised in europe london mm-hmm. are, are saying we don't know where to find them I don't want to take you to, to go to Silicon Valley for a second. Do you think Silicon Valley? Let me no. I'm going to ask you another question. So, Phil, do you go to the doctor if you're not feeling well? <laughs> I I know where this is going. No, I'm just asking. I'm t- well, <laughs> I I mean no, do. I'm not. And I don't either, right? I don't. You and I, and it's, it's it, and we should put a call out, a shout out to everyone that they should should really get tested and all sorts of other things <laughs> yeah. to make sure that they're healthy. Right. But um, and let's not wait until sort of symptoms appear before we then decide to seek medical course, intervention. But what I would say is that I don't believe these organizations believe they have a problem. I don't mm. think Silicon Valley thinks that it's missing any opportunities. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. I think they feel as though with the what was it in between two thousand. 
2018, 425 billion dollars in the United States had been invested as venture capital. And I believe that companies like Benchmark and others, sometimes who are able to get a 40x on their yeah, I mean, on return on their capital, would say, you know, look, yeah. no one has ever done this before. <laughs> no one has been so consistently good. What's the problem? Yeah. So I get that. For me, I'm saying, well, look, a benchmark is one, but there are hundreds of others that are not doing well, so well. Well, this is what I was going to say. I mean, my, you know, my friend who's a wealth um, management consultant, mm-hmm. asset manager consultant, he said, you know, venture capital as an asset class is quite bad. Because if you, because the top ten, are you, the, hel- are you helping me here? Because <laughs> only the top ten firms or top ten percentile, whatever it may be, mm-hmm. get all those industry returns. The rest, the other ninety, mm-hmm. where they at, man? So, uh, <laughs> uh, so I heard it a little bit differently, but I think that you're. But think about how ve- venture is based on how venture. I think and f- across all asset management classes, there are some. There, it's generally the very top right. that drags everyone else along and sort of exactly. makes them look good as a class. Yes, but that in venture, when we look at portfolios and how you construct a portfolio. Say Impact X with $100 million is going to make 50 big investments. And those 50 investments, we expect only a small percentage of those, maybe 10% right. to drive the returns. Of course. So we want a 10x return out of, ten, out of five companies. Yeah, that's crazy. That's really what we're talking about. So, maybe, so in, you know, obviously the rule of, so it's not the law of numbers, but in this particular situation, you would assume that, that quite frankly, some of those lower down in the group of you know organizations that aren't achieving well as aren't achieving venture like returns as venture capitalists would then make a different decision and sort of look a bit more widely and I'm sure they probably do they think of themselves as looking very very broadly but maybe broad just doesn't you know the Venn curve of the Venn circle of here are women and minority and led on led ventures and then you know there's still a whole lot of white ventures or Asian ventures that could still be in, mm. invested in. Um, as opposed to Chinese ventures in particular that could be invested in, that doesn't that Ben curve doesn't necessarily co you know overlap too well. So maybe at all, and so they still think we could expand, and still we would never find ourselves uh, looking at underrepresented entrepreneurs in Europe. We could expand in the United States, we wouldn't have to come to Europe. Right. We could expand to yeah. Canada, we wouldn't have to come to Europe. We could yeah. expand to China, we still wouldn't come to Europe. Mm-hmm. And then we could uh, do that, and still, if we had, n- and race wasn't that interesting to us, or if even though it was, we could still do it in those places and mm. still meet our numbers. So, you know, here, that's why we think of this as an opportunity, that we just think that people have overlooked something which could return tremendously. I think so, too. I want to work towards wrapping up now, Eric, because, um, you know, we can speak about this all day long. All day. <laughs> um, but I, I have a few rapid-fire questions that I, I ask people that come on the show. And do um, I have to answer them rapidly, or can I answer them Ideally. Long... I mean, most people don't, ap- you know, answer these rapidly, but okay. it kind of defeats the whole purpose of the I'm going to try. <laughs> but, I, but there might be an explanation that's so good that you want to hear. Sometimes. Right? Sometimes there are. You can also edit it out. You yeah, know? exactly. You, you control. You're in control here. Okay, what has or who has been your biggest inspiration today? I think we already talked about this. My yeah. parents. I think my parents making a choice about how they want to raise a family uh, and where they wanted to and how they wanted to make them into um, the kinds of citizens, um, believers in, believers in uh, a country, believers in their place in the country, and believers that it's not just about us, but it's about a whole, it's about the entire 
uh, group that we need to consider. So it's not just family, it's, it's whole community that we're, it's very much our focus. All of my brother and my sister and I are all the same. That's good. Uh, favorite podcast? My favorite, of course, this one. Um, <laughs> other, than, other than this one, which I do think has a very special and important place, so I'm very impressed, actually, this idea of hand-me-downs. I think when I was looking at it, I was like, wow, that's really an, a great idea, that what you do is you take something and you repurpose it for the sake of the next generation. So yeah. I love that idea. So good for you. So it is. You Appreciate know, that. That's very good. Um, I do listen to uh, This American Life, I, 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 which is on an American... Um, radio program that then became a podcast on public radio yeah. but it does most you should look at their I want you to look them up and I want you to look I at their production market. but look at their production staff yeah. look at what their production staff looks like and that's what I'm saying mm. that's the America that I'm interested in and it's also the kind of Europe that I'm interested in something that looks that diverse mm. even though Ira Glass is facing that or is the face of that organization the voice of that organization yeah Alex Bloomberg used to be the face oh yeah, yeah. I like Alex. I like Ira. Um, <laughs> I'm an Ira guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, favorite blog? My favorite blog, I was just reading a blog. Well, it's not a blog. It's really a Twitter um, by Jason Pinto, who's actually one of our um, founders. and Not founders insofar as he's one of our portfolio company founders. He's at Pace. I love his his blog. But, I mean, he, he speaks from... He was a venture capitalist. He started mm. a company. He's now an entrepreneur, and he's also from he's Trinidadian Jamaican extraction. So there's a lot going on. So it's always oh. very fascinating, especially during Mardi Gras. Time. Yeah, I'm it's sure. <laughs> uh, favorite book? You know, my favorite type of literature is um, sort of the short story, the American short story. I think it's a fantastic format um, and perfected in the U.S. And there's a woman, J. California Cooper. Um, who is a sister who writes beautifully um, in the short story format. Um, so I would say that she that that's some of my favorite. Um, she's one of my favorite authors and some of my favorite work. But at the moment, I'm reading, I told you, I'm reading, um, but Daniel Defoe, I'm reading about his memoir of, 19, of the 1665 plague uh, in London, which decimated the population. And I'm reading it because I'm interested in network effects and how... In Is a that time. The, the the Black Death? Yeah. So, and, and he, he published it like set in 1722, so years after this happened, but he had kept this diary of what was happening on a day-to-day basis, death rates, and how word was communicated, poor region, poor um, boroughs and, com- and wards and communities, rich ones, and what were the responses of various people. It's a fascinating conversation mm. about sort of network effect. Now, if I'm smart enough, I can then extrapolate from that and figure out sort of how that then yeah. helps, <laughs> me with, helps me and my entrepreneurs and our portfolio company with network, but... I really am enjoying that book. Mm, I'm going to check it out. Uh, favorite Instagram account, if you have Instagram. Oh, well, of course, my my second oldest uh, goddaughter, Gianna Lum, is a fantastic... Um, did I meet her in New York? Is that who I met? You did. Yeah, yeah, That yeah, is yeah, hilarious. Yeah. You did. See, this is ridiculous. <laughs> now, this is absolutely ridiculous that you know my goddaughter from San Francisco yeah, yeah, who yeah. happened to be looking... She was looking at... She decided to go to Columbia. Oh, so nice. So she's getting her... She, Congrats. That's so funny. She's getting her master's there. Yeah, that yeah, That is yeah. hilarious. You're right, because we went to Hill Country, Hill we? Country, yeah, yeah. We had that cornbread and stuff. Oh, yeah. It was good stuff. It was good cornbread. Um, but she... So <laughs> she actually is very much in, um, about uh, environment and conservation and is um, and is a very big, and uh, she's very public in terms of her opinions, and I like her Instagram. Mm, okay, I'll check it out. Uh, what do you wish you could do that you currently can't do? I wish I could hit a ball in pa- inbounds a hundred times in a row. 
if you had that sort of consistency wow. and that sort of ball placement that you could actually sort of do that, then I'd be a different tennis player. Oh, so I wish I could do that. That's good. I mean, well, okay, that's a frivolous one. <laughs> yeah. No, that's good. No, I mean, that's good. That's, that's what that, you wish you could do. Well, but what I really wish I could do is I really, <laughs> oh, wish, I I really could put to work, wish I really wish I could put to work immediately, you know, many more pounds and pence to um, underrepresented entrepreneurs in Europe. That's what I really wish I could do. And I wish I could convene more people to understand that if they can, if they are putting their money into real estate and other sorts of things, that's great. But risk capital is actually a category yes. that can make a difference. And I try so, to explain this to people, but... It doesn't... Why, is, it, why do you think it just I doesn't... I mean, you're in Europe. People are risk-averse, you know? But you, if, if we continue to be risk-averse... I mean, and all, and You're we gonna did. get mediocre outcomes. Yeah. So how do we? How do well, we... welcome to London. People are mediocre here. Oh, stop! <laughs> oh my goodness, <laughs> everyone, that was Phil. Eric is the one who has the American accent. That was not me. Hey, I'm just telling you how it is, dude. Oh, okay. There's a reason why I got that American visa. Yeah. Are, are you and I going to be getting hate mail based on yeah, this? No, no, no. It's the. I mean, like, I'm a tender soul. You people know? just don't shoot. People are not shooting high enough. Yeah. It's the truth. People don't mm-hmm. shoot. They don't. They don't want to go for the stars. You know. You know. Like you said, risk capital is a category, mm-hmm. but people don't want to entertain it. They much rather put their money into a property somewhere um, and get you know a small return, and you know that's retirement. Mm-hmm. Where you know they could put their money into something that you know high risk, high reward. People mm-hmm. just don't have risk appetite, and that's fine. That's fine too, actually. That that's okay. <laughs> more for us. But people do hear all about Amazon, and they do hear about Google, and they do hear about Facebook Hathaway, and, yeah, and they do hear about BET and Radio One. These are places that have built inordinate. Um, if you're really interested in money, then. Are you really interested? So you also your the, your interest in in money is is tempered by your interest in, by your risk profile, and I get that also. Yeah. I wish we could get a few more people. And Impact X, we have actually found these people who say that risk is that you know that they're willing to take some risk, and that they believe the reward will be not only outsized in terms of financial return for them, but in terms of social impact. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we have the double bottom. I think it's Im- I think it's important, especially for for black people to to seek that out more because the more rich black people there are, the more impact we can have. We it can is, change. It's a virtuous circle, isn't yeah, it? But, yeah, but um, I don't know. So if you put money in, those those companies grow, th- those companies can hire people, even if they don't go public, even if they don't ever sell, they hire people, give them resumes, give them opportunities exactly. because there's a disproportionate hiring of black by black, women by women. And so the great thing is then some of those people will go and they'll go. Some will go to other organizations. Some might, might go to Airbnb. Some might actually go to government. But some will actually start companies. And some what, some of these companies will eventually exit. That produces wealth for those people who yep. are LPs yep. and those people who are in the companies. And then that creates a circle. Put some money into charity. Do that. Put some money into properties. Do that. But take some money. And that's what we're saying. Yeah. Put it into risk capital. And that's what our people are committed yeah. to who are investing in Impact X. And again, that's actually where the gap is for most black founders they have to bootstrap because they don't have anyone who's prepared to be the angel and get them to, you know, their first 100K to mm-hmm. do whatever it is or first 50K, you know, a group of friends put a thousand, 10,000, mm-hmm. but again, but the risk profile. Do you find, so I find that there are many organizations that exist that have, I would say that they have had at least 25,000 put into them by themselves by either taking it from salary because many, most of these people have had these fantastic jobs. Many entrepreneurs yeah. are entrepreneurs after they've left something else. They were, they were a banker, they were, a, um, they were an accountant, right. and then they've gone to something else. So they actually have some savings. Some have equity in houses and homes and that sort of thing. And some do have families. Many of them don't, but some do have families. And that we fi- I find that there's money. They go to pitch, event- they win, yeah. they get money, they go to accelerators, they get some money mm-hmm. from them. 
them mm -hmm. so that many, most people are able to hustle to get some small sums. Right. And then that's where the challenge occurs. And that's why we want to take the next step. Right. Because if we were to just fund everyone at the concept phase, that's fine. Um, but we think that the concept phase, let the weeding out process happen, and we'll take the next step. Once you've gotten to the seed, pre-seed is gone. Seed, maybe we'll get involved there. But we can get involved in pre-seed and seed. We can get involved throughout. But we'll, so we'd really like to say, as you go from seed to Series A, or seed or, and a seed extension, that's kind of yeah. where we, we think that's where money is not available. Because mm. people get first rounds, but they don't get second rounds. Again, we can talk about this all day. Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, yes. Rapid fire, moving yes. slow, slow burn. Um, what's the advice you would give to your 21-year-old self? Um, fail much more quickly. Mm. Yeah, and then move on. Get in, get out, and just crack on. That's good. Uh, if you had $100 in your favorite city, what would you spend it on? Well, I would be sitting for at least three meals at Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles in Los Angeles. <laughs> that is precisely what that I would do. That is so American. Okay, but I do, I do like myself some Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles, even though I'm lactose intolerant, so we won't even talk about that. Um, <laughs> so what, would I, what else would I do? I would probably rent a car, and I would drive along the coast in... Los Angeles, and then drive through the hood in Los Angeles. I just find it, I find both very exhilarating. Wow. So you want to go from Beverly Hills to Compton? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And then I want to go wow. outside. I want to go into the valley, and I want to see some farming also. I just find, I just find, I really do like California, Southern California in particular. I really like Oh, with $100. Oof, what yeah. car are you driving? No, just a, just, well, Tesla. Just a, just, no, no, no just, a, just a little, well, maybe that's three days worth of rentals, you know? Wow, $100, you're going to make that money stretch. Yeah, I've got to have oh. to. Um, what's the one thing startups need to ignore in the early days? I think startups probably need to ignore the many voices which are, offering advice, unsolicited advice. Mm. The reason being that I think you have to have a pretty strong view. You can't be, you can't be, you know, you can't be um, completely with your ears plugged. You can't have your ears plugged and say, I'm not going to listen to anybody else. Right. Um, because quite frankly, you don't have every experience in the world. But if you have a vision and the, re and the vision is based on experience and the experience is leading you to say that this would be the correct kind of solution and or opportunity, then... Sticking with that, I think, is extremely important um, and not getting yourself necessarily um, misdirected by a lot of voices coming at you. So I think what you should not do is uh, listen too much. I think you should listen, but I don't think you should listen too much. And that's a hard balance, I think, for a person who thinks that by listening, you're actually appealing to a person who might give you money mm. or they might partner with you or they might come on as your CTO, co-founder, whatever it is. So some things you, you, you have to weigh that, but I really do think yeah. that there's sometimes... One thing I used to say to people was, the only advice I have to you is not to not take too much advice. <laughs> oh, so we agree. Yeah, okay. yeah, it's true. Yeah. No, I think, and I think again, when I was starting out, I was definitely guilty of that because, mm -hmm. you know, you don't know anything. Mm -hmm. You know, I haven't seen an exit. I didn't even know what that was when I was starting out. So, mm -hmm. speaking to anyone who would give me, you know, any time of day, I just talk what they would say as possible. But what you mm -hmm. find is that when you take too much advice, it becomes conflicting. Mm -hmm. um, there's a podcast with a guy called. Uh, 
Rahul Naval, the co-founder of Angelist. Mm-hmm. Um, and he basically said, if you took all of the advice that you were ever given, it would all equal zero. It, yeah, because so, yeah, exactly. It was like if you take all the advice you've ever been given, it would all equal to zero. Like you just have to almost navigate stuff yourself. You know, but my father gave me a piece of advice years ago. He said, and he found this. I think he was in the he was in the Air Force at the time, and because he was ROTC when he was there, and he went to college, um, and part of his college college I guess was paid for by ROTC. Yes. Um, but he said to me that he'd read someplace that if you want your prayers answered, you should get off your knees and hustle. Right, <laughs> yeah. that was and that was one of his wow. you know, church going man, um, and but that's the idea that you have to really toil away. Yeah, and so I think that a piece of advice has been something that's always stayed with me, mm. and is one thing that I that I live by. Someone once asked me what my superpower was, which I've never understood that question, but <laughs> I, I answered anyway. But it's sort of grit, you know, grit and getting yeah. it done, stick to itiveness. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, yeah, even, you know, we're going to still be biblical right now. The Bible does talk about the lazy man and the man who mm-hmm. folds his arms mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to someone who's actually up at six in the morning toiling mm-hmm. um, until the sun goes down. Hallelujah. Look at you. <laughs> it's like an amen. <laughs> See, there you go. You yeah, get yeah, 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 yeah. Right. I get it. All right. And uh, finally, what's your vision for the company? What's your vision for Impact X? I think I know what it is, but I want to hear you like verbalize that. Impact X, at the end of... Um, 10 years, ImpactX needs to have made such an impact that that 1% of venture capital that goes currently to underrepresented entrepreneurs who are of color is increased substantially, whether or not that's 5%, mm. whether or not that's 3% in the UK, which is the, the domestic population here, or 8% in France, which is the domestic population there, 1% in Germany, which is the domestic population there. I'm not exactly sure, but I would like an aggregate that there to be a much more significant amount of venture capital which is put into entrepreneur underrepresented entrepreneurs. This is the future of product creation, services creation, business model creation. I'm very sure of that and that's what we're investing in. That's good. Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, you. If you want to be found, how can people find you? They can find me at info at impactxcapital.com. That's our general. Right. And then I receive all the that information. Um, and so that's the easiest way to find us. Info at impactxcapital.com. No capitals, no nothing creative, just impactxcapital.com. Just want to say another massive thank you to Eric for coming on the show and spending his Friday night with me in the studio for two hours getting this done. Very big legend. Um, another massive thank you to Founders Factory for allowing us to use the studio and record this killer episode. I hope you guys found that super useful. Tons of great insights, tons of great conversations that could have gone on for hours on end, uh, but we did have to cut it short. Well, two hours short. As always, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. If you haven't already, please subscribe and leave a review anywhere you listen to podcasts. They honestly do go a long way. Until next time, guys, keep grinding.